welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the sites and podcasts of the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their breakout hits, legendary classics, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that may be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections can come up if you take a look at a f- director's entire body of work. Come join us on a film journey. A journey into the workman-like stories and concerns <laughs> and interests of British filmmaker Ken Loach. Uh, welcome, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And joining us to take a look at Loach's filmography, we are joined once again by a person who, to me, shows the one of the greatest amounts of effort and appreciation in the world of film that I'd ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was founded the from founding the Chicago Film Lover Exchange on the Meetup Group to a podcast of movies of the week mm-hmm. to a YouTube series. Decided that that was not in not enough of stuff to do, so she ended up founding a magazine called <laughs> Cinema Femme that yeah. discusses the work of films from a female perspective and many works from female filmmakers as well. Mm-hmm. So, and she was our guest for. Sophia Sophia Coppola, (laughs) and so we're glad to welcome back Rebecca Martin. All right. Hi, Rebecca. Well, thank you guys for inviting me. Um, I appreciate uh, you inviting me for the Ken Loach episode. I really was a big fan of I, Daniel Blake, and Kess, so I was interested in visiting his filmography, so I appreciate it. Uh, So yeah, thanks for having me. We are really glad that you're on this show. It's a fascinating director, somebody who uh, specializes in political films, in social issues, serious concerns of the day. He's really part of a movement that started in the late 50s called the uh, Kitchen Sink Realism, which is kind of... We've talked on other podcasts about uh, neorealism from Italy and other kinds of realistic films, but this is the particular British variety Mm -hmm. uh, that started with movies like Look Back in Anger, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, and uh, Billy Liar, even movies like Alfie. These are about working-class Brits often from north northern parts of England, Ireland, or Scotland. Mm-hmm. And there's a real gritty quality uh, to these films that Ken Loach really is able to key into. One thing that I really liked looking at the, his films was how he's taking the neorealistic film styles and may I feel at his best he manages to take these concerns and make them not just accessible for people to readily understand and and intrinsically get but also t- uh, to make them entertaining mm-hmm. to make these fil- there are so many of these films manage to be enjoyable and at the same time can be fairly insightful upon the different kinds of conflicts compromises and situations that their the characters find themselves in Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that I find I'm a relatively ignorant about neorealism, but the ones I've seen have generally tended towards being rather miserable lectures of where look at these poor people uh, trademark the movie. <laughs> you see, oh God, look, their suffering is so horrible and it's just, go- and here's what's going to happen to them. It's going to get worse. <laughs> um, while it's important, it was a groundbreaking style of filmmaking 
there is a way where I feel that Loach moves past that mm-hmm, style. Mm-hmm. Right, because Ken yeah. Loach does do that. But then he also has this great improvisational feel mm-hmm. to his films and a really strong way to work with actors. So you're going to see throughout, even though we're going to be dealing with some pretty glum subjects, mm-hmm. there is going to be humor, there is going to be humanity, yep. and there's going to be things that Ken Loach is going to want to bring forward that's going to distinguish it from uh, what miserableism. Right, right. And I, I was going to say, I, I did some reading about Ken Loach and his filmography and why he uh, was doing all these films in the 60s and then in the 70s and 80s, he just kind of lost his way a bit when it came to films. I mean, he was doing TV, but he even admits, he's like, yeah, I just, I didn't have that energy that I had in the 60s. Because in the 60s, that's when all these things were going on with with um, the swinging 60s in England. And I could share a quote which kind of doesn't relate exactly to his films, but it has to do with the 60s. Joan Didion, I don't know if you've heard of that author, mm-hmm. but she did a, uh, she, and I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, she was saying like August 9th, 1969 was the end of, of the 60s, and that was when the murders with Sharon Tate and all that happened. And I think what it was why she said that was because that kind of signified what the 60s were in a sense that there was love, strong love, and then like violence, like bits of violence. And I think the 60s was just like a revolutionary time that had like all these like new forms of like the way you see love and peace, but also some shit went down like Mm. crazy shit. Um, So the 60s, I think, was this cosmic time that had all this like um, energy to it. Mm. So so I think Loach fueled on that in different ways. He was looking more at what was happening with like homelessness and the working man and everything. But um, when the 90s, he seemed to be revived a bit when it, he was focusing with Hidden Agenda was kind of his film coming back, I believe. Mm-hmm. So he had a new energy at that time, still taking what he was passionate about in the 60s, but kind of re... Uh, packaging it to different areas like the issues going on in Northern Ireland and uh, what's going on in Glasgow. Like he took it all over the UK area. So I I think it's interesting. So I'm excited to kind of talk about that when we go film by film. And and something that goes and grabs the energy that you're describing of the 60s is... A key thing that helped influence like the new wave in Europe as well, and actually new waves from all over the world, is was the advancement of technology. People could mm-hmm. now make films by your kitchen sink. <laughs> you would not have to go to a studio and and uh, and have a heavy camera which had to be mounted by a professional crew in order to get these get these stories told. And right, so right. it opened up so much so much avenues and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um. And uh, Loach's, Loach's early films in particular, I think, work off that idea of, like, being able to capture these moments that were previously not pre- – not only yeah. previously not uh-huh. available, but I feel that at some moments they seem to almost get to the border of being straight-up documentaries where yeah. you feel uh-huh. you are there with these real people. 
Well, he's mm-hmm. also very unique in how much time he spent in his early career with television. Mm-hmm. We have uh, talked about other directors like John Frankenheimer with a television background. Mm. But throughout uh, all the early films we're going to be talking about, he has more television output than theatrical output. And then when he does come back in the 90s, he's really prolific. So mm-hmm. we're going to be mm-hmm. doing an overview, but there, there are a lot of Ken Loach films uh, that we will not have time to cover. Right. But the first film we will be talking about is, in fact, a TV movie. Uh-huh. Kathy Come Home from 1966. Young newlyweds Kathy and Reg seem to have a happy life ahead of them, but as they have children and Reg is injured, finances get tight and housing options dwindle. With a backdrop of a nationwide housing crisis in the UK, the young couple find that keeping a roof over their heads could cost them everything. Now, Rebecca, you suggested this movie to us, Mm -hmm. and I'm so glad you did, because it turned Uh out to be one of my favorites. It Mm -hmm. is very much a, a television piece and it and I think because of that it's able to do something that really you didn't see in a lot of films at that point which is utilize kind of this off-screen uh off-screen voices of narrators mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and characters who aren't part of the action but are going to comment on them right so we're following yeah. this young couple uh, going through their struggles, and then we hear the voices of other people who are going through those same struggles, mm-hmm. creating mm-hmm. kind of a alternate view of what we're seeing. Yeah. I really, I really like this uh, one. Uh, I was telling Brad before we started recording, what I love about this film is that it catches certain images that... Um, are kind of related in a weird way to what what they're saying in the voiceover, but not directly. Mm. So this one shot that just stood out to me was they were talking about how like there's so many of the children in those those homes. I I don't know what you would call them, where they had like all those families in one. The very limited accommodations yeah. that yeah. were only available for women and their children. Yeah. 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 And so she's just hanging, Kathy's having, I don't know, a cigarette or whatever with all the, the mothers. And then the children are just like running free. They're just like running through this graveyard that's nearby. And it's just, it's sad because you you look at these children and you're like, they're free and they're, they're happy and kind of made me think of... Um, the Florida Project a little bit mm. with, oh, with, yes. the, with the kids running around and the mothers just doing their own thing. And and then you, you're just sad because some of them are just, they just won't have homes. Yeah, that's something that calls to mind a movie I 
absolutely love called George Washington, the first film from David mm-hmm. Gordon Green. Mm-hmm. Just in that specific sense that I think Loach in this movie and David Gordon Green in that one both have this eye for this particular detail of just how kids are playing around and sometimes in places that are full of squalor, but they, they just don't notice it because everything seems right. incredibly new and right. and, uh, uh, and just a wonderful like learning and disco- experience Graveyard. of discovery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, <laughs> like what, like uh, for a kid that would just, yeah. just a fascinating uh-huh. new, new place to play. Uh-huh. And also like gets, reminds me of the beginning and a lot of the kids perspective from the really underseen Beasts of the Southern Wild that came out yes. something like about five yeah. or six years ago. Uh-huh. Just uh-huh. those moments which had like mm-hmm. and but it, I don't feel in this movie it's just four kids as the structure of this is so interesting mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the story of the main two characters I found incredibly straightforward and matter-of-factly delivered and it's kind of a straight descent <laughs> So Kathy and Reg. Kathy and Reg's story Kathy. is is so solid in terms of just laying clear what the stakes are, laying clear clear where their social position is and where their economic position is. That when you inter- insert all the voiceovers and do all the cuts to other people who. I, I think in a very nice move, we don't know if he filmed them or if he actually filmed a documentary style of people, of real people in the streets mm-hmm. or, on, or, or, or in these tenement areas. My impression is that for the most of those shots are literally just are, you are there. They're so convincing to me mm-hmm. as, as those. Mm-hmm. And so they, to me, provide the color and the reality, but the story helps us, like pulls us in to this world where mm-hmm. if you just looked at it in a way where it was like oh all these other people you don't know are are miserable and poor and they're searching for and they're hungry and they can't take care of their kids you don't have anything to hold on to in a in a dramatic way and mm-hmm. and it kind of lo- and it kind of loses a little of our ability to appreciate the situation i think so i mm-hmm. i really like how the movie works on that level loach has a really interesting technique to even further that because we also hear characters in the film talk when the camera is not on them. Mm-hmm. So there could be times when we're wondering, are we listening to one of these voiceovers or are we listening to one of the characters who just happen not to be on screen mm-hmm. at this point? But but you're right, Al, about kind of that descent. And it's a physical one because you see with each bit of housing yeah. they're moved into, their situation is worse and worse and worse. And what I think keeps us on board with the film is Kathy in particular has this optimism, has this feeling, well, you know what? Mm -hmm. This is bad, but we'll get through it. This is bad, but at least we're still a family. Mm -hmm. And the tragedy of the movie is that we see how that's becoming less and less true far before Kathy does. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Obviously, people struggle all over the world, but my impression on seeing this film definitely gives off the idea of keep a stiff upper lip. Mm-hmm. Always look on the bright side of life, to quote the life of Brian. <laughs> um, and both of our main characters, they're not succumbing to they're succumbing to being um, 
angry and depressed and railing against i think that there literally is the cliche about the kitchen sink drama it's like that's where the uh, the main character is pounding on the kitchen sink by <laughs> by screaming about this misfortune and that does not happen here these people they're they're keep dedicated to like making the most out of whatever work exactly Mm -hmm. make it right to making it work and and brad i think you're absolutely spot on in that we feel for them more because uh, they're trying to surpass a situation that we're made more aware of yeah of other of how of the dire straits they're in and we're also being put in kathy's headspace because Mm -hmm. if her attitude is keep the family together at all costs we we agree with that and then we also are seeing the injustice of how this housing bureaucracy is is crushing yeah. them uh-huh. and the homelessness mm-hmm. problem that is really and this this is again where loach is going to uh, keep doing these great politics through dramatics he's going to explain to us in a way that's dramatic and meaningful exactly the injustice of the housing system mm-hmm. at the time. But we're always with Kathy. And when she's threatened with having her kids taken away from her, just like for her, that's the worst thing she can imagine. That becomes kind of the uh, dramatic high tension of the film. Yeah, Kathy, she, she's, she's an interesting character. I mean... I, I thought it was interesting in the beginning when when she um, first met Reg. <laughs> he was just some guy. Like, he was just some guy that she, like, made out with. And then all of a sudden, he was just kind of steering the ship. And she just was like, oh, okay. And, like, just, like, getting married and having babies. And it seemed like she never was, like, making choices necessarily for herself. She just kind of accepted, like... This is the way things are. She grew up kind of similar, right? Was yeah. she saying that she grew up in the same kind of housing situations? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. So so she was just like, oh, this is just how it works and everything. And then that conversation she has at the end with Reg before he just like takes off. She just, what if we went back? Like, what what would be different? Like, what, what would, she's like, I would still choose you, but... I remember when I had all these boyfriends and I had money in my pocket. And then at the end, she realized, oh, he's, they tell her, oh, he's gone. He's, he's left. And, and then uh, that last scene is heartbreaking when they just take the children away. Then I, I think maybe she's realizing at that point, like, oh, okay, I, there's no instance where she like can take control or at least she thinks she can take mm-hmm. control. Yeah. Which you see that in a lot of Lurch films where a lot of people get into situations and then they just, it's, it's a lot of helplessness. I see what you're saying with regards on that, her, her attitude. She's very much seems from the beginning to not feel that there is a way she can influence events. Time after time, she keeps expecting Reg to, do th- uh, to, mm-hmm. to do something and but no even when no even when no thing is forthcoming and and it doesn't seem that in this she thinks about her own options of how she can go and assert like her mm-hmm. her rights as a mother and so on she's she's buffeted along on the system in a way that she's just relying on it like she was re- like she was relying on her husband yeah who it- just really mm-hmm. struck me by the way and completely unrelatedly as as a dead ringer for present-day Andy Serkis. 
which is uh, is oh. not the which is not which is weird. Not just because this is a fifty year old film, but because if Andy Circus that was Andy Circus, Andy Circus will look now like Gollum. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's funny. I didn't I didn't make that connection, but that's interesting. Uh, I I also appreciate all the different kinds of women that the film showed like all different races and there was that funny woman who was talking about how she was like hot and sexy and a whore like back in the day and Mm -hmm. she's like i was so there was personalities there that that i think because kathy didn't really have a lot of personality she was just kind of this sweet nice girl which is great but then you had these women who were like full of like passion and energy and their own personal stories and i i really appreciated that having those different women come in and we're going to look at even more perspectives from women (laughs) uh including the uh, same actress that played kathy in loach's first feature film poor cow released in 1967 Joy is a new mother, but her life is turned upside down when her abusive husband is jailed for robbery. She soon finds love with Dave, also a thief, who did jobs with her husband, but is imprisoned himself. Joy gets by doing odd jobs, bartending, modeling, and soliciting gifts from generous men, looking forward to the day that Dave returns to make her family whole again. One difference between this film and the one we just talked about is uh, is evident on, from its title that "Poor Cow" is a particular exclamation. It's actually meant to be a sympathetically dark, sarcastic referral to the main our main character. It's a way the kind of movie is showing her in the way how badly she's treated by the world around her in that manner. Just as when we do directors who do foreign language films, we in America are going to be at somewhat of a disadvantage going this deep into uh, working class British culture. So there's a lot of terminology that will mean very different things here than it does there and i think uh, and we've had to watch all these films pretty much with subtitles to make sure we're getting the language and so poor cow is a strange is strange to my ears i think it's probably strange to yours and it doesn't seem like a nice thing to say and it also doesn't seem to be accurate to what she's going through this she is not actually that poor in the context of the film and it's really about her exploring the options to get by that someone like Kathy would not explore mm. Kathy comes home is such a laser focused film and this one is much more all over the place just as the character is kind of more all over the place because she knows she doesn't like the situation she's in with her husband, but 
when he goes to jail, that kind of becomes an opportunity for her. Dave is played by Terrence Stamp uh, in a very early performance of his, and he, uh, as opposed to a lot of the villains he'd play later on, is actually for a thief, a pretty nice guy. Uh-huh. And they've got they've got some really good chemistry. Uh, but what Loach will always do is pull the rug out from under you, because when Dave goes to jail too, now she's got to find another way and we explore all those ways (laughs) yeah what another movie could be just about like someone learning how to deal with a divorce this is how someone's learning how to go and exist in this world where like they're you're just your opportunities for like romantic partnership or become like really transactional is like uh there was like a particular review saying like she's she's too giving and um open to even be a proper prostitute (laughs) right because they they're they're hinting at kind of prostitution like situations but they never come out and say that that's what she's doing it's almost like this unspoken thing, even in the bar, when uh, her men- the mentor bartender is explaining to her, get close to the men, smile, let them see your cleavage, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And, and I mean, its treatment of the subject is really fascinating because um, when she has nowhere to go, tw- at two occasions she stays at the um, home of her aunt, who is still performing prostitution. And she's a lot more... She's a lot more aware of her own particular situation that, uh, and what she has to do to survive on it. And so its take on it is rendered not in, not in any kind of, there's a particular lack of judgment on, on that, on that, on that issue. And I think it speaks to Ken Loach's feminism and the mm-hmm. fact that he is a director who can see a woman's point of view, uh, especially in how she's, portrayed versus how almost all the men in her circle are portrayed there's a part where she's doing a a modeling gig and the photographers are like do we even need film in the camera and it turns into a gathering of just the dirtiest old men you've ever seen leering and drooling and it's really kind of again puts you in her head as far as what she has to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, see, and that and this is something where I didn't find the movie work that well, and is that we are made aware of that, but not only does the main character in large parts of the movie not aware of it, she remains unaware of it. She, I don't really find that she gets to too many... There's too many levels of revelation of this is a really horrible situation including the ending of the movie. Boy, it's just kind of rips a Band-Aid off to just get to the cre- immediately to the credits <laughs> as, as she, for, I believe, for the first time addresses some unknown interviewer mm-hmm. to, to go and tell and her story. And her she's still in the grip of this delusion of, of something that I think is a delusion that, uh, that when Dave gets out of jail... Things are going to be all right, mm. but in the meantime, I'm going to maintain this relationship with a horrible, abu- her horrible, abusive husband, even to the extent that it might have her child be left alone and in danger. Yeah, it, it's pretty dark, especially since we don't know 
when Dave is getting out of jail. There, he is talking about parole in three years, but there's no reason to assume that's definitely going to happen. I think he has something like an 18-year sentence. And if Joy is kind of naively thinking that things are going to be all right with the with with the guy she's with yeah. waiting for this other guy it really does show this naivete yeah. and this idea of being blind to what could truly go wrong exactly exactly and it's something i don't find particularly satisfying by the end of this film because it's to me it's uh it's a little too reductive of course you can be sympathetic towards it, but what else can be drawn from there? And and I, I'm just I come like mostly empty is that her life is bad and it will remain it will remain bad and uh, unfortunately some of it is going to be that she's just not even aware of how bad things things can get and she'll continue to live in her delusions. And I think that itself is storytelling tragedy and so I I think there's some worth to that. It's disadvantaged a little bit uh, from seeing it right after Kathy comes home because it has the same lead actress and there are some themes in common. And the first film, I think, is just so much better. But Mm. Loach seems to have this kind of base level of quality where even the stuff that doesn't really hit like this one because it's, uh, like I said before, it's kind of all over the place still has has moments where I'm very involved and very much invested in in the main character. Well, one thing that remain that comes from this film as well as the first is is he has this knack of of putting in naturalistic dialogue and also an emphasis on particular just little moments in the film that capture these points of happiness for her. Like she she says later in the movie that that Dave has shown her these moments of happiness she didn't realize were possible, and we get to see these just happen almost in like erupt out of almost nowhere. Like ones where the Ter- uh, he Terrence Stamps uh, David character picks up a guitar and 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 plays a tune which both uh, she and her she and her uh, uh, child appreciate. And another is a, a really touching meeting when she meets Dave in jail, as well as the initial flirting between Dave and. Uh, and her and the main character. They're presented in this really naturalistic manner that still has ability to draw some draw some interest. Okay. But ultimately for both this one and and less so for Kathy, I felt that there is just not enough characterization for me to, to hang on to her and, and it's kind of she becomes a sort of a, a placeholder, like a character who's sort of sacrificed to show uh, just per a person's unfortunate situation. But things get brightened up for the character in the next movie we're going to be talking about, Cass from 1969. Oh, it is planned, it's story, but I've heard it before. To me, it's a mystery, but somehow still, well, just a dark, a real. 
young Billy Casper is a troubled teenager, often running afoul of his teachers and withdrawn from his distant mother and loudish brother. He finds an outlet for his dreams when he adopts a wild kestrel, another name for a falcon, and through much research and practice, trains it and develops skills and confidence through his newfound passion. This is a more subtle Ken Loach. He still mm-hmm. is talking about political issues, uh, class, and the idea that uh, this young kid has no hope to get out of his family situation. His brother's a coal miner, and he's basically told, well, once you go out of school, you're going to be a coal miner too. Mm-hmm. That That's your only option. But instead of focusing on that, we get a, a really nice character study and, and a look at this kid in all aspects of mm-hmm. his life that I found uh, really effective. Yeah. I believe this was my first Loach film. And I was drawn into it because, one, it just seems so raw to me in the sense that I've never seen... I mean, yes, I lived in the UK for a year, but I was in London, which is very different. So just seeing it was the first time for me to see like working class. And this this kid is just he's a ruffian. He's misunderstood. He's angry at the world. But then he finds some kind of solace and peace through through this um, falcon thing he does. Uh, and I I really was was drawn to that story. Um, in this movie, uh, Loach, I feel, finds his first character. This mm-hmm, is a mm-hmm. great character. Yes. He, uh, just his attitude towards stealing or nicking, as uh, mm-hmm. the uh, as the British people would call it, is really is really cool. As he would only take certain things, like from uh, certain uh, things from the milk uh, from a milkman, or he would go and. Um, uh, he would only take a book because the library is, is too bureaucratic for him to, <laughs> to be able to just take a book out. Unlike the characters from the first two movies, he's immediately aware. Mm-hmm. He knows he's in a bad. He knows he's in a bad situation, and and the and the ways the ways he re- there's certain points where he reacts against it, and certain points where he's uh, he tries to go with the flow, and and these dynamics are all are all done not through lectures, but through just the ways he reacts on a soccer field, yes. for, for one example. Yeah. Or his wandering around through the um, forest, a kind of a uh-huh. magical transversal in the beginning that leads to this really interesting sheer cliff where, I'm sorry, sheer wall where the uh, Kestrel lives. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and again, we're, we're ahead of him. He doesn't know that this could be a life-changing thing for him. He doesn't mm-hmm. realize that what he's getting is this opportunity. Actually, one of his teachers do, and and in a world where most of the adults are the opposite of understanding, it was nice to see that one teacher mm-hmm. kind of got what was going on. Yeah, and then the imagery of of the bird itself as this uh, avatar for uh, freedom and the mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the the chance for him to fly away so to speak yeah. is, is some great imagery mm-hmm. and what i what i appreciate what loach does is that he shows adults like real people not like these are the parents and these are the children and the adults are the more responsible ones and the children are the not responsible ones he he shows like grown-ups at their 
at their worst. The mother, she she was just going through a lot, like a lot of um, problems and situations. And uh, just the way she re- reacts with her son is just a little adolescent. Am I wrong on that? Or, well, she's yeah. kind of not there for him. And the, the okay. father is literally... For liter- some reason, I remember yeah. her being like getting all emotional reactionary but i maybe i'd not well there's some yeah. dynamics because she also she also wants to go out and on weekends and right. have a good time yeah. this is something that her older child is is reacting badly to say the least okay about. oh that so was probably a, a, it. Yeah. Fair, uh-huh. a fair argument about yeah. that yeah okay but the but the adults in there they're not treated as either like um, uh, Charlie Brown anonymous figures of of, of going wah, 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 <laughs> nor are they treated as like the parents of of a of a teen sitcom in the eighties uh, right. or nineties right. as just these people who are so clueless and they they just can't relate to these they are people with their own flaws yep. and their own perspective. Mm-hmm. I really like this scene where like the headmaster comes in and he's this. Uh, this looks like this evil, sadistic version of Tim Kazarinsky from the Police Academy movies, <laughs> and he goes on this pretty extended rant upon like the 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 quote unquote "you kids today" statement. Mm-hmm. But but it's uh, but it's clear that he comes from all this history of him having to deal with these kids for thirty years, mm-hmm. and and Loach does a great job of cutting to these kids who are just laughing more and more as they something they clearly have heard a couple hundred <laughs> times before. And my favorite guy is the soccer coach. Because ah. this guy, we, we get to see him on the field, and all of a sudden, the movie pretty much just becomes about this guy who's taken his, the game with the students way too seriously. Yeah. He is so <laughs> invested in this soccer game. And you don't really get the feeling that it's because he wants the best for the kids. I got more of the feeling it's because he's trying to recapture something oh, from yeah. his own exactly. life that, that's mm-hmm. missing. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's several points mm-hmm. he shoves another kid on the way to score and, a goal. And, and yeah. I feel like you, you see that a lot, you know, in Kess and other Loach films where the parents or the adults make all these mistakes and then they're like, they want to correct them in their children. But it's just very cyclical. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's it's interesting to see how that all reacts. Yeah, especially since the old, uh, uh, especially since he can't be, Cass cannot be a more different than her his older brother, who is, oh, one of the most negative portrayals on the older sibling put uh, put on film. And he's a he's a vicious, nasty, brutish, uh, brutish customer who is. Um, mm-hmm. He works as a more evil Tyler Durden almost for me because. To me, he comes across as this could could be him, our main character in ten years working in a coal mine. Mm. He could be this just yep. this just brute guy who only cares about weekend uh, uh, weekend alcoholism and then just bet, uh, betting on the horses and and like whatever was part of his soul is gone. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the first thing we see in the film is that they not only have to share the same room, they have to share the same bed. Right. And when we see how cruel this older brother is, we're like, oh my God, this is this kid's life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you guys feel about how the movie ends? Well, yeah, I mean, that cruelty really goes to another level because the, the older brother uh, kills his his brother's uh, falcon. And since we realized how 
symbolic and important that is to him. It, it, it's it's a really brutal act, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's kind of brings us all down to the fact that as much as he might try to get out of this situation, better his life. And and if this was the path, it's a path that could easily be stopped by one cruel act. Yeah, it's it's so super it's so super fragile, but even in such a, a, a dour place where moments of grace are hard to come by, they still can happen. For as just how nasty it is upon how things are snuffed out at, at the end in a way where once again, I kind of feel like just that the band, that, that the momentum of the film gets pulled off from in front and like, Oh, what's, what's left. Mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. you're, it's, it's very bracing, at least in these films, because yeah. I kind of feel in a way, maybe Kathy come home gets to the end point. He shows you the epilogue of what happens at mm-hmm, the end. It's, mm-hmm. it's the title card to say, these people are homeless. They have their kids taken away from them. And I I kind of think that in both in Poor Cow and Kess, he's being merciful by taking a step back. Just one step on the, the horrible thing, which is that that the character of Casper and Kess might just end up like to be his brother. All hope will be snuffed all hope will be snuffed out. But he stops short of that. So we, I think, I feel myself, I careen mm-hmm. past mm-hmm. that to go, yeah, it's not gonna. I, it's kind of done with him. And, yeah. And I, for me, I when I see the movie again, because I saw this before for this podcast, but when I see it again, the thing that f- makes me feel particularly bad about him is just this very touching moment when the teacher brings him into the classroom to just say, so what's an interesting, f- notably, what's an interesting fact? And Casper doesn't, at, like to Brad, to your point, he doesn't understand that the other kids would find having a falcon is... It was legitimately cool, mm-hmm. and 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 as he's relating all these details that he did about how here's how you feed him, here's how you keep him away from the, here's how you keep him away from the glove, here's how you train him to fly, and and you see the other kids get more and more enraptured. They start asking questions and mm-hmm. so on, and then mm-hmm. and I think even at the end, it has a value for Casper, but even he doesn't realize the effect of other that other that it has upon other people. But the but you get that through what how the teacher reacts and how the teacher gets mm-hmm, to pay him a visit. Mm-hmm. It hits me a little bit harder to see that than just and just to see how the course of events in the story is never gave him any uh, hope in a, in a way which makes you wonder how illusory was it to have a was to have a hawk. He was not going to find his way into a Wes Anderson movie where <laughs> is it that's going to work? Oh God, yeah, no, that's funny. <laughs> so yeah, it's it was always maybe it was always a pipe dream, and so that's a and that's maybe the very feeling he's trying to say in this movie. Yeah, I I felt it was a little it was pretty ambiguous. I think Loach allows either option. So it's a value to you that it stops short. Because well, you well I mean, it, it and it's ways. something that, that Loach will do in a lot of his oh, yeah. films, uh-huh, uh-huh. is yeah. not give a pat ending. And, and I think yes. this is one of the more effective ones, because you're certainly given two different paths that you could imagine this kid's life going. And we have to imagine, because it's not spelled yeah. out for us. Yeah, and I, I actually really appreciate that. I was just thinking of My Name is Joe, where it's obviously two very different stories, but you come to the point where he's 
you know he's had a past. And I'm talking about My Name is Joe, and I'm not going to go too in-depth of it. But then he has this time where he finds something in his life that makes him happy, mm-hmm. and then and then he loses it. So it's like he gets something and then he loses it and then you don't you don't know. And I I think for me, I the optimist in me, I like to think that having even that time of happiness where you find something in your life adds to it rather than oh, well, now it's all gone. Like mm-hmm. I feel like it'll circle back in some way. And we will circle forward <laughs> quite a bit yeah. to 1990. Uh, Ken Loach did only uh, a few films each in the 70s and 80s. But in 1990, he had a bit of a comeback with Hidden Agenda. and Paul are American human rights activists compiling a report on the troubles in Northern Ireland. Paul is killed after receiving a tape from the British military informant containing secrets that could bring down the government. Ingrid and a grizzled police investigator dig into the clues, but must consider how far to take it when they see how high up the corruption goes. Hidden Agenda is is a movie I found incredibly strange. <laughs> I had a, a very particular I had a very particular reaction to it. Um, I think the best way I can explain it is like this very very strange dream I had, where it was like it was, sometimes you can have people have dreams where like they're themselves are in a movie set, and and I I one for one day I was in a, I had a, a dream that I was. Uh, a part of a spy movie, like uh, trying to evade people on a skyscraper, trying to get a climb up the different stairs, and there's pursuers all over on that. They have the stairwells covered. They have the elevator covered. And then I figured, okay, I'm in the dream. I see. I'm going to go. Let's me go around the edge. Maybe I can go to an adjoining building. And when I get on the ledge, I notice there's a helicopter with a searchlight. <laughs> and at that moment, I thought, okay, I don't see any way out of this particular situation, and I woke up. I literally talked myself out of my own dream. (laughs) And this is Ken Loach talking himself out of his own conspiracy movie. (laughs) (laughs) This is a a political thriller that is given some the feeling of realism that he's evoked in his other three films that we talked about, but he does it a little too much. 
Um, I really like thrillers as and 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 political intrigue movies. Um, and part of the reason I do is because it's the idea of like who can you trust, and mm-hmm. and it's it really and I find it really engaging to see how these wheels and wheels work with and, and how schemes get and puzzles get uh, figured out and what the what how often the truth can be hidden. But in this is a film where that is then explained that. Well, the way of the world works is that uh, you're going to, the bad guys run the show and you're pretty much going to be able to get away with it and there's not a lot you can do and that's, uh, that's, no just, the way, that's just the way it is. Although it has yeah. that in common with a number of the uh, conspiracy movies of the 1970s, films like uh, The Parallax View, that uh, gives us these kind of shadow organizations that uh that's right you might come close to bringing down until you realize the scope now hidden agenda is really interesting just in where i saw it in the loach filmography okay. because up until seeing hidden agenda i had really only witnessed his uh realistic political looks at poverty and regular everyday life. Mm-hmm. And so, but you're right, this is a thriller. This is a, a genre movie to an extent, but it's also a Ken Loach movie. So all the thriller elements are dialed back a lot. Mm-hmm. But I kind of like that because so many thrillers try to be uh, as big as big could be. And this one is looking... Looking a little, looking at it a little more subtly, looking at it more through characters than through just what's happening. It's got some very interesting uh, conspiracies that it reveals, almost turning it into a, a Northern Ireland version of JFK, mm-hmm. except without any of the bombast that Oliver Stone would yeah. put in it, but with with a, a certain sadness about it that this is the world is presented and we're kind of helpless in the face of it. It's an uneasy mix. Something that I found was, uh, it, it kind of had more at war with itself than the different warring factions were at war with themselves. There are these moments that if you've seen several political thrillers, you kind of know, Oh, this is a figure I recognize from such movies, such as the the cop who plays by his own rules and is going to go and solve the case no matter what toes he steps on, or the moment where a per, a character is put into a a, a secret enclave where the um, uh, where he finds the powers behind the all, all the events who explain their evil plan, and mm-hmm. and even in and and these scenes are super weird because you're looking at these older characters who literally are like um, one hand is grasping the other in like a moment that every you recognize from every villain from the silent movies going, <laughs> but the things they're saying sound kind of reasonable and you and you start to and you start to think like okay well i can understand how a person in that position would think to make this political assassination and so on and it's something which is a great benefit of a lot of loach films is he has this kind of great feeling of empathy towards a lot of the characters Uh even people um who are part of a bureaucratic system and kathy's comes home they're not treated as villains they're just part of a bad system that is the system is treating people badly but they do not themselves have a lot of malevolent intent but here you're talking about things of like international intrigue and and uh, political repression and yet when you're looking at these characters like 
Okay, but he's just an ordinary guy. He's just a nice guy. Yeah. There's a lot of malevolent intent in, in this, but it's done with a smile. But still, you're kind of seeing the face behind the unseen bureaucracy that's the villain in so many other Ken Loach films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In a similar way, like the, pol- uh, the policeman who's given a lot of wonderful authority, played by Brian Cox, has a really serious thoughtful, heart-to-heart talk with his partner about how, in point of fact, his actions are not going to be triumphant and will will lead to his ruin more than anybody else. Yeah, that's its moment of brilliance because mm. we look at this, uh, this investigator who is brought in as an independent outsider, someone who's presented as incorruptible. Even he sees how is it worth it to destroy my entire future, possibly even his own life, the life of his family, to uncover this. And Brian Cox is an amazing actor. He steals just about every movie he's in, including this one. And you really get the feeling that when he's no longer going to be able to ride to the rescue, well, that's kind of game over. Um... But see, the thing is, is that the movie's plot does not quite get to the point where you, where things are made apparent and that things are not going to end well. Hmm. I compare, a good way to compare this is to the parallax view. In point of fact, this is filmed really nicely in the same style, which is sense that characters are shrouded in darkness and there's these like mysterious hallways and, uh, in corners where you think a menace might be just around. And also they do a pretty decent, uh, pretty decent car chase in this one. Mm-hmm. But whereas the ending of Paralyzed View works as an absolute punch in the gut, when you realize that the way that they trick is a way that fits the things that the people in power want to do all along, it's a way of taking the ideas and having them connect. And it's like, mm-hmm. and I feel it's like when you like, just like when you flip a switch, except for theme and uh, for theme and film's meaning. But the way this one is not is the complete opposite because you have a, a character is at his lowest point. In in a conventional kind of movie, you think, okay, but is he gonna find redemption or will he finally succumb? Well, he's on a he's on a he's on a location where he has to travel one way or the other. And another character is still dedicated, and they're they're still heading out to see if they can if they can make a difference. And the movie ends. Cut the credits, and you're I, I'm just left. I felt like Spoiler I was. Alert. I felt like I was left in. I felt like I was left in space. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just what? Ah, uh, it's one thing for you to give a negative message, but it's another to be profoundly unsatisfied at how nothing got resolved. Oh, I think everything got resolved. In fact, I think this matches Parallax View huh. in every way because it has a very similar message. I, I don't think it was. I mean, it, it ended in the way Loach films end, which mm. is on kind of a life will continue to happen note. And you're not going to see giant letters the end. But I don't see how to read the film in a way that the villains of the piece and that the government is exposed and that justice is done. I just can't find a reading of the film that allows for that. So I don't think it was really so ambiguous. I think it really struck down our characters. Francis McDormand's character is the only one by the end who still wants to continue fighting, who wants to continue searching for justice, but without Brian Cox's character backing her up without some kind of official ally, 
you know that she can just be dismissed. They they basically say earlier in the film that the reason she needs this investigation to go through is because she can be easily dismissed. And I think that's the ending we get. There's a, there's a really interesting thing that I just noticed, but looking at this in comparison to the other movies, where it's once again a female character needs a guy in order for things to even try to work out well, and she's kind of looking for that person. Because er- earlier in the movie, it's it's noted that she is, she before she was with this member of a civil liberties group that was looking for, advocating for human rights, she was affiliated with some other person in Chile who had mm-hmm. been, who had met an untimely end. And once the human rights person she had the relationship with also meets an end over the course of the movie, and now she needs support from... Brian Cox's character. It's interesting that you have that feeling that she would be adrift without this guy's help. Because no, that's no, kind no, of what not happens about... in Cow, it... and kind <laughs> of what happens in Kathy, kind of what the main character in Kathy Come Home, it feels intrinsically is like she needs this guy. It's not about the guy. It's about the his official place in government and yeah. his status. So she's an American investigator who is coming in to uncover these injustices, these horrible things happening on behalf of the British government to the Irish people, which we'll see played out even more in a future film we'll talk about. We'll, right. we'll talk about. But the actual dynamic of what has to happen to uncover a conspiracy is kind of, I think, true to life in things that we see in our own politics in our own day in that it's very easy to dismiss somebody who's on their own. And she's smart enough to know that. And she's smart enough that there has to be an official corroboration to help her out. So I don't think it's about gender in this case. Mm. Because if that if the, the if her character was, was male, it would be the exact kind of situation. The same situation. Well part of that part of that can come from that the last thing you see of her is she's running to a phone to continue pursuing the case. So it's only natural for us to think, well, what's going to happen to her? And the movie doesn't give us any answers. I felt I read an answer, but we will disagree on that. Well, you figured out the answer, but I'm saying a, 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 a different film and a different ending would show us the answer and let us examine what, what that answer means. That's, I think, an extra step that the movie could have done. But I, I do agree that by having her giving her some agency at the end, uh, so it's not specifically the same format of, of you needing a guy. So, in other words, maybe that that wasn't this film's hidden agenda after all. <laughs> <laughs> Fine male figures are in very short supply in the very aptly named Riff Raff that is um, uh, the next one we're going to be talking about that was released in 1991. 
In this film, we follow a group of workers hired at a rat-infested construction site, a former hospital. One pro of them is Patrick Stevie Logan, who meets a struggling singer, Susan, and they soon move in together. The pressures of the job are great, as the worksite has little to no safety regulations, as Susan's career is stalled, leaving the couple on shaky ground both at home and at work. Especially in the upper okay. stories of work. Yeah. Right. Can I can sure. I say something about this film? Okay, first of all, I really liked it. But one thing I thought was interesting is that the the writer, Bill Jess, he was a construction worker. Like mm. that was his main trait. And he died during this I don't know if it was the making of the film or, mm. or when it came out, but he was the one who wrote the story. So he was an actual construction ah. worker, which I thought was interesting. Oh, well, this is one of the things I really enjoy about this film, which mm-hmm. I, I actually do qu- enjoy this film quite a bit, and which is the banter between the different construction workers. Yes, this is, it's awesome. It's, it is so cool to me because it gets to a Howard Hawksian level of just a bunch of construction working slobs <laughs> <laughs> because there is something like about... 11 to 12 different construction workers and they all have a different personality. Mm-hmm. They're all immediately recogni- recognizable when you see them on the construction site and they all have a different particular kind of demeanor mm-hmm. that all mixes together in the way they like uh, they they joke with each other, they drink with each other, they play practical jokes on each other, they la- they mock the different like uh, foibles that the each character has. All this stuff I found really, yeah, really uh-huh, wonderful. Uh-huh, There's a yeah. great scene at the beginning where you kind of have the cliche character of the the guy in charge of the site yeah. yelling at everybody and screaming and <laughs> just putting everybody in place. <laughs> and, and finally he yells at this one guy who's an older guy and yeah. he's like, I'm old enough to be your father. Why are you talking to me like that? And that he's kind of speechless. He's like, well, you're not wrong. So, <laughs> yeah. so that there is some really cool dynamics going on. It, it goes on these parallel tracks of the life on the construction site and then this uh, relationship Mm -hmm. that the main character played by Robert Carlyle is uh, going to take with a uh, struggling uh, singer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Robert Carlyle uh, may be most famous as playing the incredibly short-tempered drunkard Begbie from Trainspotting, someone who avoids drugs but uh, overcompensates by wanting to attack everything (laughs) in sight when he's not drinking. And he's a little less hyper-violent than here. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. uh, This is more of an attempt of him being an everyman uh, uh, character, Um, but I'll be one who has had a a, a troubled past. And Mm -hmm. now maybe if uh, Dave from uh, Poor Cow was to finally get out of prison and try to make a good life for himself, this is the the further progression of how difficult that's going to be. Mm -hmm. And also fulfills a little bit of the forward of the idea of Casper from Cass, whereas um, Casper can only dream of a better life, but... There is ways where a better life can be put in mm-hmm, reach for mm-hmm. these characters. Yeah, um, the support system in the among the construction guys is really really sweet. Mm-hmm. They they mm-hmm. help him get a place to stay. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and in a and also very touch in a very touching and super insightful moment when they first see um Susan singing. She's not good. She's not a good, <laughs> she's not a good singer. She's not good and, at all. And she's booed off stage. But then 
the several of the construction workers go on stage and upbraid the people in the audience to just give her another chance. And she comes by and she doesn't really sing that much better, but the crowd she is changes a lot more... her song. She changes right? the song to <laughs> that Beatles song with a little help from my friend. Yeah, exactly. which is works perfect. Mm-hmm. Like it, it works perfect. And yeah, there that's like another ma- movie magic moment. I I, I always find these movie magic moments in films and right there it's just like you're with the crowd and you're with her and you're just so happy and she's so happy and then you know you could tell that um patrick patrick stevie is is falling in love with her and and that that's a moment where you just see him totally become like drawn to her which is which i love that because you saw that instant connection and that's why it's so interesting and later in the film when he gets shut down right away when he sees her taking drugs mm. needle drugs yeah i thought that was great but back to the the character i really like him in comparison to all the other characters and all of the other loach films he seems to be the most positive and he seems to be one that has like dreams and he's actually working to get there and he just is he's doing it the only time where he like freaks out is when he's like having that issue with uh susan with the drugs like he's like oh my feet are bleeding that's the only time you really hear him complain about stuff and he's just got a good head on his shoulders and i i like seeing that character in comparison to others that i see in um loach's films yeah i agree with all of that but he's he still struggles though with the kind of bureaucratic nightmare that a lot of the other characters are going to have to face because we see that this is an unsafe work site. Oh, yeah. And yes. that kind of contrasts with this sweet romance mm-hmm. is, is the fact that we still have kind of this uncaring authority that is going to put their lives in danger and actually possibly cost uh, another worker his life. Yeah, Carl's character is one of the more positive portrayals in, in Loach because... It's not that he knows all the answers, but he does seem to have the most de- most dedication towards trying to do the right thing, mm-hmm. trying to go and 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 care for uh, the people and his and his workmates and so forth. But events are beset upon him that just that just uh, lead him to a breaking point. So, mm-hmm. um, um, this is something where it was I uh, found a really unfortunate is it takes a little bit too much of a detour by finding out that. Um, his mother had recently passed on, mm-hmm. and so he goes to a whole different environment at the funeral, featuring an early performance by Peter Milan as his as his older brother. It's a kind of unusual detour for several ways for me. One is which is that it's um, it's so much more lush and open and green, and everyone is well dressed, and so the context switches quite a bit. However, what doesn't switch is some of the body excessive humor which works wonderfully on a construction site i find that humor match that it, it was so delightful even to the extent where like wait where do you where can someone go to the bathroom <laughs> is a constant running gag of what what's where one can find taking a bath exactly i love that women. right i love that scene too and it's a running as as the movie goes on you then see a, a real big sign that says any urination on this any urination <laughs> in the apartment on this floor means he leads to your immediate dismissal <laughs> and then later you see that same sign but someone wrote in the corner piss off <laughs> which, <laughs> works, which works wonderfully yeah um but 
On the other hand, when it's moved, it's that kind of humor is transposed to the funeral scene in a cringeworthy. I, I like. Well, urn, go ahead. Yes, yeah. the a cringeworthy urn uh, ash dispersal scene that actually is sillier and wackier and more maniacal than Donnie's ashes from the Big Lebowski. <laughs> it's like. Oh whoa! That this this is a madcap thing where I don't see where that where that's uh, mm-hmm. that's really working out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just gonna say I I I actually like seeing him off the construction site mm. because it added a more of a dimension to okay. his character where he's not like just the construction worker guy. He is also someone who has a family that's a little quirky and he has like stuff that happens outside of his work day. And that scene where they're doing the ashes and stuff, I thought it was hilarious. And it was just one of those scenes that you, you could just see. I don't know if you could see that happening in real life, but it, I just loved seeing it unfold and the guy's like I can do it like the guy who works there he's like just give it to me I can let me do this and they're like no we're doing it ourselves <laughs> like and you could see well maybe that's where he gets his do it himself mm, attitude yeah. from that family so so you have a little bit yeah. more of a depth that's, to who he is that's a really good point yeah. it's mm-hmm. it's it's something where because in the beginning, you don't really are given that much of a history. And in fact, I think he even says to his girlfriend that it's not that there's all these things that you don't know about me. And we mm-hmm. in the audience don't know mm-hmm. until that, that that he's part of a bigger family. It kind of harkens to a a film kind of really well regarded for that aspect. Um, five Easy Pieces with oh, uh, yeah. Jack, where Jack uh-huh. Nicholson is uh, working on a construction site and hanging with um, Karen Black, but it turns out he's actually a classically trained musician. And where he comes from could not be more different than where where he is. The funeral sequence also allows us to get to know the Susan character a little bit more. Yeah. Because it explores her insecurities. Uh, When she sees that he's leaving town and going to be away, she doesn't really feel that the relationship is on such solid ground that she doesn't worry about whether he'll still be there there for her when he returns. So it's a way to explore the relationship further, which Ken Loach is really good at, these yeah. these realistic romances. So many mm-hmm. Hollywood movies have romantic couples that require some contrived meet-cute in order to get them together, mm-hmm. and or some drama out of nowhere in order to create problems for their relationships. But these are all just really human, really natural relationships that uh, that Loach seems to do effortlessly. I really liked in this one how the, the two parts of the relationship, they... They have these different levels of expressing of expressing affection and support. Uh, it's so charming. I feel how the how Susan is so much more willing to express like uh, express her feelings towards him in a way that makes him feel uncomfortable. Like mm-hmm. with delivering the birthday cake, he reacts really badly to giving this birthday cake. By the way, the, then, uh, the the worst looking birthday cake I have ever <laughs> seen. It's yeah. like uh, you, uh, uh, some unappetizing British food for you there, Brad. <laughs> so remind me of the boxers. That was something he said he wanted it. Yeah, that was his dream. dream. Which, his is, dream. which is cool. It's a yeah. practical. It's That's practical. Right. It can sound a little silly, but he's, a, he's like everybody that. uses boxers. Yeah. And she even gives him as a birthday present. I know. It's 
little this this oversized clownish bear. I, bear. I think, and he really appreciated that. He was mm-hmm. really touched by that. Yeah, so, yeah. exactly. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, those that that dynamics of how of what she what she needs from him and what he would like from her from his side. How there's a there is a little bit of a distinction there, and and mm-hmm. but it's something that's that becomes an obstacle to making it work. But also, it looks at back when this is a case where. When the relationship gets sour, it's a perspective that also is rarely shown in a conventional film. Most conventional films just have them reunite, right? But here, when she leaves, she's gone. It's she's well, she comes pro- back. She does come back, but, but then after but then, at, at the construction yeah, site. Uh-huh. But then after the construction site, like the the house is empty and and she's not there. She's she will not make. That was a deal breaker. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, and, and and for but the movie continues on for ten minutes, to, so you realize no, there is not going to be some. There will be no resolution from that. And what do you guys think about his resolution at the at the end of yeah. this film? I mean, th- unlike certain <laughs> other films we were talking about, this one's got a definite ending. <laughs> I mean, if we if we walk through when when he his friend dies, when he he tries to like grab him, and then he falls to his death. It was interesting to me that when he goes to the hospital to see if he's all right, he won't give his name. Yes. And I think the reason for that is because he didn't want to be associated with the death. Like It was because he had some sort of troubled past that would, would that had him a little bit afoul of the law and giving his name would put him on some sort of... Uh, yeah. On the radar. At least that's my impression of what, what that was. I just thought maybe since he was kind of there and... Because he didn't save him, he might be held responsible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, might, he might think that, even though it's clear, and he had a witness that he did his yeah, best. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh huh. And then the reason why they burned it down was the reaction to the death, right? That's what I mm-hmm. got from it. And then it, it was kind of funny that guy, the bo- main boss, who was there, like with the dog, like chewing at his pant leg. That's right. The dog turns yeah. on him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was poetic in a sense and i i i thought it was fitting in a sense like yeah you shouldn't just burn things when when you're upset about stuff and but it seemed to make sense to me and they were laughing because they were you know happy that they were taking charge of this situation like Mm -hmm. it's their fuck you so yeah 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 there is going to be uh some of loach films where it's made well. Kathy, come home is an example of where the system is so upset against them. Uh-huh. And actually, this is a case where the things I really like about Riff Raff sort of worked against the ending for me because I really would want more the story to be more of a descent and more along more along the lines of that the system is set up against Robert Carlyle's character. And I don't feel that that's the case. I feel he could have he could have continued working on this. It would have been an unsafe work environment, but it wouldn't. It's not like he was going to be blamed or going to jail for the expense of this guy. Who, by the way, it's also a little bit. I felt it was a little bit odd because his personality is is super optimistic, and he's saying, "I can't wait till I go pay a visit to Africa. I can't wait till I go visit Africa in a way where like." Okay, I have felt a feeling he was going to be dead meat. When he we was were like a-, a cop two weeks away from retirement. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. So I didn't feel the sense that the system was oppressing Robert Carlyle enough. I mean, he had some hits with the relationship ending. That's uh-huh. for for sure, and and with his mother's passing. But especially, that's not the building but site's what, fault. Was that what it was about? Like, I mean, it was part of it, but I, I, so. 
yes, it seems like a lot of Loach films have have an agenda, and mm-hmm. they say like, oh, the 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 system, the system. This one, I thought it was just a story about a guy who got involved with some part of the system that wasn't working out. But it's really just, mm. I like it that the it just kind of flipped it on its head in the end. Like that's why that film stands out to me because I feel if. <laughs> If all the films were about the system that Loach did, I, I, it would be like mm-hmm. Terrence Malick, how he always, um, after Tree of Life, it just got... About yeah. about his yeah. own thing. And, yeah. And he's, uh-huh. and he's just... And it's making the films as a delivery vehicle for right. the exactly. The system here is plot B. Plot A is the human story. Yeah. We still yep. get the system thing, but it, it, it's reduced... It's, in this case, it's something where it's I'm, going to come back. Oh yeah, it's something. Well, yeah. It's something where I feel it got moved. It got moved to a different characters because mm-hmm. all this, all the, all the different people involved in a construction site, they have their own particular problems with yeah. with, with management. For example, there's an there's a subplot about a guy who's cashing checks for other people because they yes, can't get off the he's side. He's the only one who has an account. That's right, exactly, yeah, and so, so. That, that leads to a very thoughtful argument about these things. Uh-huh. Um, and then the the older the guy who could be the person's father who also takes the unfortunate bath on the upper yeah, floor, yeah. Uh, Larry, I believe is his character's name. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. He's also he's traveled the world a bit as like uh, I believe as part of the Navy, and he's the person who's most like articulating upon the different ways that these workers who just want to earn a living yeah. but just the different way these workers are being mistreated he wants to make sense to unionize yeah. which leads to his leaving the scene yeah and then one thing I want to add maybe because the writer he was um, a construction worker maybe that's why the story is a little different because it's more him in the film than Loach mm-hmm. could be mm-hmm. yeah, yeah very mm-hmm. yeah that's very yeah that's very possible it's this is a uh, the first like, it's definitely the first film that I saw which just does the ensemble of all these different characters of these different personalities done uh, uh, rendered so nicely so mm-hmm. yeah that's certainly possible well, you didn't wake up this morning because she didn't go to bed you were watching the whites of your eyes turn red the calendar on your wall is ticking the days off you've been reading some old letters you smile and think how much you changed All the money in the world Couldn't buy back those days You fall back your hands And the sun burns into your eyes You watch your plane flying Across the field sky Next up, My Name is Joe, released in 1998. Joe Cavanaugh is a recovering alcoholic who struggles to get by, but seeks to return the help he's received by coaching a soccer team and trying to set a young man right who's been involved with drug dealing and the local mob. He's also fallen in love with Louise, a good-hearted healthcare worker wary of Joe's associations. There was a, a eerie similarity to something that happened in a, um, uh, of all things, our De Palma podcast. Oh. Because what, there was a, a certain movie that had um, 
Al Pacino, Scarface, in the starring role. And a movie that came out before that that has a similar kind of story, but a much, much less charismatic actor. And I feel this is what happened in the distinction between this movie and Riff Raff. I, while I feel Robert Carlyle did fine in his role in Riff Raff, I love My Name is Joe. And, mm-hmm. and a big reason is Peter Milan as the main character of, of Joe Cavanaugh. He is both a considerably better actor than Carlyle... There's at least four or five showcase scenes, I feel, in this movie where he has some really great range of emotions. But he also has, to me, a super infectious presence. Whether he's just, like, scampering down the street after he's just uh, uh, written his phone number for this uh, for this lady, or he's he's trying to scrounge up some crappy used uniforms for his, um, uh, for his <laughs> fellow so. soccer mates. Yeah. He's really really endearing for me to watch i i i can't get my eyes off the guy (laughs) i have to agree i mean he carries this film in a way that doesn't really require a lot of other plot elements in fact i think that where this film might falter a little bit is when too many plot elements are introduced (laughs) because i think that just watching this guy's everyday life and again, a really sweet romance uh-huh. uh, being built up with really good chemistry between the actors. Joe is, uh, we first see him in an AA meeting as a recovering alcoholic. We see that he's gotten in touch with kind of a future that he sees for himself. And so when that's threatened, it's really moving to see his internal struggle, which, uh-huh, which Peter Mulan uh-huh. is, is able to convey. So, so yeah, we have, we have an example here of a, a perfect actor-director uh, combination. Yeah. So I really liked this film as well. I, as you were talking about him being an alcoholic and him coming to terms with that and being challenged and everything, I noticed something. He's like you said, he's a very charismatic guy, and you you just you love him. You're like, I love Joe. He's great. Also, you could see part of alcoholism is that he's very impulsive. Like the whole thing with the ring. Who does that? It's like five weeks into the relationship after he tells her about what he did to his last girlfriend. She's already jittery. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm kind of an abuser when I drink. So here's a ring, you know, and and then but he's he he just is driven by this emotion that makes him such a great guy. But it also makes him very dangerous. So it's very interesting to me, um, just his character. And also the woman that he starts falling in love with, Sarah Downey. Downey. Yeah. She's just so the opposite. She's really like balanced. She lives her life every day intentionally, um, Mm. helping people. And her life isn't about her. It's, It's about other people. And so... I think he sees something in that, but he also is very self-involved, too, because of his disease or alcoholism. So it's it's interesting to see, like, the mob get mixed up in it. Like, like you said, that is kind of a weird element to it, to have, like, the mobster stuff going on. I would have rather it been just, like him just dealing with things maybe normally <laughs> but, but, yeah. but yeah this is right this is a very fascinating film this is one of my um 
the first film that I'd ever seen of Ken Loach was, mm-hmm. was My Name is, My Name is Joe. I I enjoyed it right off the bat tremendously. And to the extent that I was thinking about it for this podcast is that could this be like a great gateway of Loach? In other words, the thing to just let people know if you if you should see some film to see if you are into what Ken Loach is all about. Um, looking at it uh, for this podcast. It's a little less that because it isn't, it's more on the case of Loach taking his feelings of empathy towards characters and, and also giving them like these, these nuanced and, mm-hmm. and, and, and quite rich portrayals at times, but it, it's in service of a very conventional type story. Mm-hmm. Like the mob stuff. There's a couple of Charles Bronson type movies about the people who get out from under the their sinister criminal origins and mm-hmm. the people have the shady who have the shady past. Something mm-hmm. that was uh, hinted a little bit at um, in Riff Raff, which, by the way, Rebecca, to your point, it's it's interesting looking at these two films in comparison because I think their dynamics are reversed. Susan in Riff Raff is the impulsive person who makes the grand romantic gesture, yeah, uh-huh. and Joe is the impulsive part of that, and yeah, and, uh-huh. and Sarah Downey is the more practical grounded person yep. who wants to support people who are outside of herself. Yes. So I really mm-hmm. I really like that difference. The other thing it has in common with Riff Raff is kind of the helper associates. So we talked mm. about how the other construction guys uh, fostered the relationship there. Uh, here, uh, Joe's buddy even uh, wallpapers uh, his uh, girlfriend to be's apartment just in helping to help he's, Joe. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's the best. Yeah. He's the best. He's the best bro pal in your corner yeah. until <laughs> until possibly Brad Pitt's uh, from Once Upon a Time. <laughs> but the guy, the unfortunately named Shanks, is like you want him on your side. And it's and it's and I find it really right. charmed when they're they're wallpapering to help uh, help help clean up Downey's apartment and they're clearly BSing of they don't know the first thing about wallpapering <laughs> and um, it leads to a charming moment of revelation when when she says okay I know you guys have no idea what you're doing <laughs> but it just, right. she lets them lets them do that anyway it, it's so sweet but then there's this other couple Liam and Sabine a uh, younger couple who are in all kinds of trouble with uh, drugs and mob connections and that that seems a little more forced to me and also just less interesting because i'm so interested in joe and louise's relationship Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i was not invested in this young couple who are kind of in movie trouble (laughs) that that you see a lot that you see a lot of and again that brings the mob in and the the guy playing the mob boss was actually really effective himself but i felt like he was in the wrong movie yeah i'm like okay Uh if you want to be a thriller that's fine but I was really enjoying the nice little human comedy that was going on. Yep. I, I liked his performance as well. And But it's a similar thing to what happened with all the political machinations and Hidden Agenda because he's a drug-dealing thug, but he points out, okay, if I don't take care of this guy who hasn't paid me, I lose respect and then I'm finished. And then, like... Darn it, <laughs> darn it, Bloch, you've, you're making me see his point, and, and he's delivering that point really nicely. But then it also hits on these other standard mobster formulas about, like, you know what I'm going to do with your girlfriend if uh, once you're out of the picture. <laughs> and also, those people who are familiar from Ken Loach, from his the neorealist stuff we were talking about earlier... Uh, when they see a bowling montage, <laughs> they come across <laughs> as a little bit of a surprise. But it's handled really nicely. And, and there's a way in Revolver, like, 
the person with quote-unquote movie problems <laughs> that, that led to a really wonderful realization for me when I saw this movie again. Because I felt the same way that you did, Brad. I felt more so in the sense that Liam is just such a loser yes. chump who's such a yes. dead weight dragging Joe down. Uh, and why and, does he care about him so exactly. much? I don't get that. That's a, see, yeah. that's a feeling that I was getting throughout the movie, especially his, he picks the wrong time to say, hey, Joe, I got this secret. Oh, wait, the person <laughs> is in the room. Yeah, <laughs> that's you. But I think there is a reason. The one time he helps out, mm-hmm. yes. I think there is a reason. It's because... He's been saved from being a loser himself Joe because has. Joe, well, yeah. well, Joe was a. We don't see Joe as the blackout drunk he would have been uh, back in the day, and probably just the terrible things he did. Well, we do see a flashback, but we don't. We we don't really. We get to know Joe as a much better person, uh-huh. and you could see how grateful he is to Shanks for being a sponsor and helping him stay sober mm-hmm. and all that. And, and I think that. This even goes uh, to him being a soccer coach and wanting to be a mentor. Yes. That he sees this loser kid and is like, you know what? Somebody helped me when I was a loser. Maybe I can do the same thing or they for this help kid. <laughs> right. Or they didn't. But maybe yeah. I can give back because right. somebody helped Joe get sober. We exactly. don't see that story, but somebody yeah, did true. it. We see the tail and end of it. His we testimony see the, in the very beginning scene. Right. And so he thinks that he could do the same thing for Liam. Unfortunately, Liam's uh, and Sabine, they're a little too far gone. It's a, it's a sentiment that when I realized that that's what was happening, I loved it. Because it's both psychologically insightful and then it, it, inc- something I find incredibly sentimental. Mm-hmm. Um, the psychological insight comes from... When you realize it's not about Liam, it's about Joe's need to go and see how he can find a meaning and purpose in his own life because he's also struggling to find uh, he's struggling to find work. He's on he's on welfare at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. So how does he find value? He finds value of being able to help people yeah. and make a better uh, make a better life for that make a better life for them or, or try to. Right. Well, what I thought was interesting was when um, you know as soon as she Sarah found out about him helping Liam when he messed up. He now wants to go back and make the choice like I'm done. I'm going to go tell the gangster guy that I I'm done and I'm going to I'm going to be with Sarah and this is the route I should have taken from the beginning. But the the struggle and the strain that we see during earlier in the film is is it the woman or the relationship or is it helping Liam? Like you can't do both you need to choose one and he's trying to do both and he realizes too late that he's just lost her because of it it's such a um great example of like just trying to do all things out there like and Mm -hmm. you end up you have the that is a potential way that you can lose it all Mm -hmm. and 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 it also leads to a, a a really interesting detail which is another way the movie upends it this is what i love about uh, certain films is when Something you think is a liability turns out mm-hmm. to be something positive mm-hmm. because, like this, this Liam thing turned around when I realized this is it's because of Joe's motivation that to help Liam, not of anything Liam is doing. Because Lord knows Liam does not do stuff to deserve Joe's aid. No. Joe goes above and beyond. But that again, that turned to a great value. And in addition, there's a tiny moment where Sarah locks herself out of her uh, own house. Yeah. Notably, the reason she does it is to give Joe some money and then argue with him because Joe doesn't want to take money. Right. He doesn't want to make it put into those terms. Uh-huh. A uh-huh. sort of... Uh, 
an interesting counter to the kind of explorations on prostitution in the earlier films, to make one example. But then she locks the door. And by the way, there's some there's a cool thing going on with which door is open and which door is... Because uh, mm-hmm. at the end, when Joe's at a very low point, he leaves the door open. And that's the thing that allows him to be saved because it gets... Someone warns him oh, yeah. in time. Uh-huh. It's because if he didn't leave the door open... Things could have turned out quite it's different. It's all about doors in this film. It, well, it's, it's, I think it's something that's moving around through it. But then, yeah. but there's a moment which kind of would come across, came across to me initially as a meet cute kind of situation where uh, Sarah's then invited into Joe's house, and then she pops in play on the music on the uh, boombox, and you're hearing classical music. And I remember thinking, okay, does really Joe listen to classical music? What what the it's hell? Calming. It's supposed <laughs> to calm him. There is that. Yes, he needs but calming. Exactly. And it, he definitely needs calming. <laughs> but but then he has a little story about that. And the story was he stole a bunch of cassettes. Oh. And those were the ones that no one wanted. And so what he's doing is expressing in musical terms what he's trying to do in social terms by helping out all these people who are in downtrodden parts mm-hmm. of his life. Mm-hmm. And in addition, it's a little bit of a hint of what the Casper from Casper was doing. He saw some beauty and he wants to go and preserve it. Mm-hmm. And so that's a super cool thing from this moment, which I, it would be cool from itself, but it's super cool for me because it comes from something which I thought was cheesy. Hmm. It's a way of helping me look at things in a better way. Mm-hmm. And so I love that that happens in Joe, which is just full of great detail, oh, details like that. I love its treatment also of thievery. There's a way a Ken Loach per- perceives like crime and, and activities that people think are disreputable that's has a very particular kind of nuance. Like, Sure, it's okay to nick things, but it's not okay to steal things. There's a humorous moment there's where they... There's a moral line there. Where they take, yeah. where they take mm-hmm. some uniforms, just so they can get some uniforms to be in their game. <laughs> and then Sabine, there's a moment where Liam tells, says that his wife, Sabine, okay, now I know she's prostituting herself, but don't prostitute yourself to those guys. <laughs> and so I, I like that there is this particular kind of su- uh, subtlety, to, subtlety to this. Well, we could talk about the end. It's another one where I talked about briefly when we're talking about Kess, where there's something good that comes into his life and then then it's gone and he's he's left in shit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a really interesting. Yes. The ending is a real interesting take on his lowest point because he comes back to drinking. Yet at the same time, this is a moment that I found strangely cathartic is that when Liam re-enters the picture long after he should have left um, by Joe's suggestion, Joe really lets him have it and tells him exactly what what he thinks of him. Yeah. <laughs> that I felt that this is something that he's getting released. And there's a lot of release that happens there. It's a, it's a sort of a way that by the end-end scene is another thing that leaves a lot of things open. Like, for example, yeah. I don't think the gangsters... In, I don't think the gangsters would leave Joe particularly alone, seeing what what how he reacts to them. For one thing, mm-hmm. but in one way where I feel it works nicely is that it's because he's left this baggage of trying to help people and is moving forward of like trying to deal with things on for terms that will help himself. And it's it's a way of like you just see Joe walking off, mm-hmm. and then a character joins him. But I just want to I guess some of my impressions on here is that. It would have been a, a success I would have enjoyed with another actor, but I love that it had Milan in here because mm-hmm. I find Milan is like this just titanic presence. And I want to also just use this as an occasion to recommend him in two other movies, one of which is called Session 7, about uh, 
people renovating a former mental hospital, huh. which is kind of funny because it is a, a might be the premise of a riffraff thing, but just done in horror terms. And him and his crew, which also feature a younger David Caruso, have almost as much problems dealing with trying to get this cleanup done in under budget and on time as all the supernatural and sinister presences that happen in, in mm-hmm. this. And if you like how extreme he is in this film, how he can go to such emotional depths and extremes, he does this astoundingly in a film that came out uh, six or seven years ago called Tyrannosaur. Where he fits, he fits the title okay. of a ra- of an older person who's raging, and it's directed by an Irish actor, Paddy Considine, and it, it also features an, a titanically emotional performance by a younger Olivia Coleman, fresh from the who is ah. now most known for winning her award Oscar for the, the favorite. favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, uh, both these films, in their own way, are just beyond remarkable, and, and ah. I can't recommend it those guys I'll have enough. To check that one out. end up getting sweeter for the characters in the next movie we're going to be talking about Sweet 16 (laughs) released in 2002 it's a story of young Liam whose mother has been put away for a time in prison and now has to try and find uh, accommodation in in his countryside environment most notably with the drug industry in his efforts to just try and find a better life for himself and for his family he he goes through various methods to ingratiate himself on the, in the local drug trade but finds out that there's many ways that you can get to unexpected conflicts from pursuing such a risky path well this is not the same liam from my name is joe there's a lot of liams but, but you know what he, no he no that could. other liam would have the the would have the crack pipe explode in his face. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know that I see that much of a difference. Uh, I found that, like, this movie is kind of the My Name is Joe B-plot oh, turned okay. into the A-plot. It's it's a straight-up gangster film. We're really seeing this this young kid, and I think that's kind of where the, the movie distinguishes itself because it, it's a little bit of a Goodfellas uh, Henry Hill arc, mm-hmm. except instead of a young man joining the mob it's really this kid who's not even 16 yet just slowly kind of figuring out that he's got angles and that if if he does certain things he can ingratiate himself to the local boss and and make some money and it's also really the story of uh 
of him losing his soul in the process a very yeah. a very standard mob story and, which i yeah. would have appreciated a uh-huh. little more if we got to sympathize a little bit with him at the beginning as more of an innocent but but the fact that he's not really that sympathetic to begin with <laughs> yeah. makes me a little less involved in in his losing his soul well okay i i like this one part of it's interesting to me because you could say, oh, this is a coming-of-age film <laughs> because it's about a teenager who's finding himself right. and all of that. Uh, but it's also not like that either. It, it You kind of start it in a happy... Like, it, he's doing pranks and mm-hmm. they're playing fun teenage songs and you're just like, oh, I, I like it. He's just going out there and doing it. He's getting mm-hmm. his caravan yeah. and getting his whole family in there and he's got plans and he's just mm-hmm. he just seems like a good kid and yes he does questionable things like being a drug dealer but he's got goals but he's also just like a young guy hanging with his friends and i just thought it was a different teenage story and mm-hmm. could you call it coming of age i gotta think about that but it, it's it's a different type of teenage well, film what I, i'm so glad rebecca that you brought that up because it kind of clarifies one of the things I really, really like about the movie that I mostly don't like that much. And, okay. and part of the reason that <laughs> part of the, and and part of the reason that I don't like it that much is it's similar to something that ironically happened in The Irishman. Uh, no, no relation on the culturally speaking, but <laughs> but there's a there's a character in The Irishman who um, not only pr- does some dumb activity, but he persists in pursuing this stupid activity over and over and over and over again. Everyone's telling him, you're going to be in real trouble. Uh-huh. Not only does it make him uh, lose all sympathy towards this character, but anyone who's hanging around with him loses sympathy too. So like like Brad, to your point that he's that this Liam has a little similarity towards uh, jo- my name is Joe's Liam. Unfortunately, he has his own Liam. A guy who's <laughs> like a, 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 a kid who hangs around with him called Pinball, who is nine times as dumber than he is. And Liam, again, is not the brightest bulb to start with because his idea is to, uh, oh, I'm going to go rob from these drug dealers, <laughs> um, which... But he's also 15. Right, but um, uh, I'm looking at the concept of it and Got I'm it. finding like, gosh, this is really, really thoughtless. And it, it leads to this, there's a kind of a, a moment where you just see how, how reckless it is when he just decides to hang around and sit in the middle of a passage known for people to get to travel to a, a house to get drugs. I'm just going to stand in the middle of this area and say, hey, get your drugs from me instead. <laughs> and three three people aren't having it, so they simply beat him up and get his drugs. Mm-hmm. Then he runs over and fights them, and they beat the the three guy, the three on one, yeah. beat him up, and then he fights them again. <laughs> the first and half then he of... fights them again. Yeah. <laughs> The first half of this movie is kind of a repetition of Liam getting his ass kicked over and, and over again. Exactly. But he also figures out a way to fail upwards because <laughs> he yeah. he is doing he is doing things that to kind of I think normal people who don't aren't seeking a life of crime seem a little a little dumb. But I think one of the things that attracts him to the mobsters 
is they like that idea because they see him as somebody who could do their dirty work for him, which leads to this scene where they basically tell him, hey, you want to really get in good with us? You, you got to kill this guy. Right. Uh, yeah. And he gives him the, the weapon and the directions and where to find him in the bathroom to kill him. And then, and, and then when they realize he's going to do it, they're like, oh, no, it was just a test. <laughs> oh, no, but they all, but actually, they were all there waiting in the bathroom with him. Yeah. They were they were going to test him all along, which leads me to go, ah, oh, Ken Loach, you're just such a nice dude. <laughs> you're just a nice, friendly guy because you're like, okay, I know these guys are drug leaders, but they wouldn't actually have this kid kill anyone. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I'm sure he realizes there are plenty of mobsters who would be perfectly happy to, to see 15-year-olds and younger actually perform a murder to, to show their loyalty. But again, it's a really... A really charitable move. Like, and when well, we're talking about Ken Loach mobsters, yeah. you got to kind of <laughs> take it out of the the Copeless Corsese area and realize that we're, we're talking about mobsters in small towns. Yeah, These, it, well, he's, the, he like has this yeah. workmanlike empathy towards mobsters. Is what I'm getting at. <laughs> Just like the mo- like the main mobster from main the mobster from My Name Is Joe, like. Okay, man, you're just trying to make a living. I see your, I see your point. And there's a way that this tone was about the drug dealing that was super interesting in context of other films where show deal, having people take drugs is a mention of dissent, which they can never escape. That is what happens in Riff Raff, right? But here it's treated in a kind of a madcap way. There's some jaunty music as as the kids are the kids are serving quote-unquote pizzas, scooting around in their mopeds. There's a kind of a chunky kid with glasses who is awkward and doing his drug transportation. And it literally has a delightful delightful montage of how their little drug uh, business is thriving. Well, I think there's a difference there. There's Mm. the users and there's the sellers. So Liam in Sweet Sweet 16, he's a seller. He doesn't do them. And his mother does them. And so I think he looks at it and says, this is a way I can make money. What I think is interesting also is that he's his his love for his mother. Yeah. Yes. Even yes. though she treats the sister gets yeah. it. She's like, oh, she's never going to be around. Like, she's always going to go back to drugs and these loser guys. Mm-hmm. And why bother? And then he's just like blinded by this like perfection. He, he's put his mother on such a high yeah. pedestal. Yes. And it's like almost that's what what takes him to all those different places. Exactly. And exactly. Then, and then when he gets to the end, it's just like it's fallen. Like he uh-huh. realizes. And the mother yeah. seems to have a lot in common with uh, Joy and Poor Cow. Because in both situations, we're presented with these abusive, terrible men who we think um, the woman's going to be able to get away from. And they just go back and it's it's something that uh liam just can't get over when he sees that his mother is going to go back to this this horrible man who he was convinced that she wanted to get away from yes that was kind of the final straw in his humanity Mm -hmm. Uh right my first impressions on the movie i like didn't quite know how to because i wasn't that sympathetic towards uh-huh. liam and definitely not sympathetic for him hanging around with his buddy who is literally nothing but problems yeah which is by the way actually something that i really can't even stand in mean streets it's just like <laughs> when you have a guy who's literally spending so much of his so much of his 
existence being an annoyance and being stupid and being reckless yeah. and putting making problems for everyone then you do get guilty by association by mm-hmm. deci- by making the choice of being around with this person whether they're family or your longtime friends or what have you but for most of the movie I'm thinking that but Loach does it again in the sense that he he takes what I thought was cheesy and makes it a value because when he finally sees Pinball at the near the end of the movie, mm-hmm. Pinball is even more obnoxious than he was earlier, but the obnoxious really turns into a very self-defeating, self-hating, mm-hmm. uh, like there's such a death of a sense oh, of yeah. like his feelings of worth of, of Pinball's feelings of worthlessness that it recontextualizes, makes all his reckless actions showing a feeling of, of, of self-destruction in a way. Huh, this is a weird analogy, but I'm going to throw it out <laughs> there. It's kind of like how when you see a romantic comedy and the best, the quote-unquote best friend of, uh, of the main character in the romantic comedy is a little less attractive, <laughs> but also a little hornier because they're kind of meant to be these impulses that the main character can't, we can't really find you want in the main character, yeah. but the best friend can express them. Mm-hmm. Early in the movie, there is a there is a, a character. I think the sister, Liam's sister, tells him, "When you were fighting people, I thought it was because you were brave. But I realized later it wasn't because you were brave. It's because you didn't value anything for yourself, and you were just wanting. You're ready at a moment's notice to throw everything away. Mm-hmm. And Liam's buddy Pinball is the exact example of that at the end, yeah. in a way that like made his actions so much more justifiable. And to your point, Rebecca, about using the knife, he finds a use for the knife. But what does he find it for? He finds it because this is a movie where Goodfellas, you were calling it a coming-of-age story, (laughs) but this is a movie where Goodfellas turns into a coming-of-age story, or it started as a coming-of-age story, became Goodfellas, and then turned into a coming-of-age story because all of his motivations of building a better life Uh were as a result of his childlike wishes. It's like Goodfellas cross of Rosebud from Citizen <laughs> Kane. Like the things that motivate them were, were not these grand schemes of conquest yeah, yeah. Or, or these ideas of being a man or all, stuff like that. Uh-huh. It's these childlike things that had driven him to do, to, do, to do these actions. And now he's finally made the very particular tragedy of a crime movie. These are these childlike things that he was never able to get past. Yeah, yeah the movie so cool the movie has uh-huh. interesting thematics, but I'm not sure it has the writing to justify them. <laughs> yeah. So, like I mentioned my issues with Liam earlier, but the pinball character is really a lost opportunity <laughs> because yes. he's kind yes. of the Fredo of this uh, <laughs> yes. movie, but he's not given the depth and writing of Fredo. So when 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 Pinball takes a turn and we see that he feels like he's been done a great injustice and lashes out, I thought that was really abrupt. Yes. And this is kind of the turning point of the film and it, its impact for me was lessened because Pinball is such a shallowly drawn character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was, and I, I would love to see this movie again with that, in, with, with that in mind. We'd seen it movie very, very, very recently for this podcast. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. And, um, yeah. and I would uh-huh. really like to see that with that feeling in mind because I agree with you. It's very much a, an abrupt change of a perspective, but 
when I think of the implications of what that means for this guy and the mm-hmm. fact that it f- makes all of his actions that seem reckless and stupid seem natural and intrinsic to him as a, as a real human being, I like the implications of that. And maybe it doesn't or, uh, justify him like literally calling a mobster Al Capone, looking to want to be Al Capone right through his face yeah. and not expecting something really bad to immediately result. But... I'm willing to entertain the possibility. Yeah. And then just one last note. I know we're going to transition, but uh-huh. I, I think it's interesting that starting with My Name is Joe is the same scriptwriter for the rest. Mm-hmm. That is uh, Paul Laverty. You, you were talking about writing. Yeah, and I'm, di- I'm dinging Paul Laverty or Lafferty on this particular uh, film, but I have to tell you that as we move on yeah, and kind of true. look at it's the different. accumulation of uh-huh. his scripts, he is an amazing writer. Yes. Yeah, I really like what he's done is in these two films, uh, Joe and Sweet Sixteen, we're talking about because because it's a particular thing that I treasure in films almost more than anything else is I love the film that exceeds your expectations of it. Mm-hmm. That's part of I think it's part of the reason I react to Joe so nicely is because it's just a kind of romantic comedy about a, like a delightful figure for mm-hmm. a but it has these depths that reveal themselves and and I think that. That combination of Loach and 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 uh, Laverty or Laverty, they're onto something. Mm-hmm. And that combination continues, and wins a Palme d'Or with "The Wind That Shakes the Barley," released in two thousand six. I sat within the barley green. I sat me with my true love. My sad heart strove the two between the old love and the new love. The old for her, the new that made me think all island dearly. While soft the wind blow down the glade and shook the golden barley. It's 1920 in Northern Ireland, and British soldiers regularly and brutally clash with Irish Republicans. Brothers Damien and Patrick O'Donovan are at the forefront of the IRA resistance, but when a peace treaty is drawn, the brothers end up on opposite sides of whether to accept the compromise or continue the struggle for full independence. Uh, more doors in the, uh, Ken, involving <laughs> Ken Loach, huh? <laughs> um, the Wind That Shakes the Barley. That's such a wa- beautifully poetic, uh, evocative title for the movie. I, I think it's a lyric that is, is sung by some characters at a mm. funeral scene uh, mm. and around the midway, about the midway point of it. But I think it's also re- is a really thoughtful take on the idea of causing agitation through all the outside events that get that get buffeted on here this is a really nice combination of people who do influence potentially world-changing moments in the history of ireland but then also circumstances can turn things beyond where they where they could ever imagine and Mm -hmm. and i feel a huge value of what this film is doing is it's doing to a political idea what my name is Joe is doing to a uh, kind of social idea. Yeah. Something I, I appreciate with this film, 
when I went to Ireland, uh, like a year and a half ago, I was in Dublin. So it wasn't like I was in Northern Ireland, but they had all these like videos like showing like the history. And I was like, I haven't really seen this in films so much. And watching this film, you think, oh, British people are so nice. <laughs> like, but seeing them be so brutal, it was just really, it was hard to watch, but I'm glad that it was brought to the screen. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. this is one of the best um, depictions of what what they call the Troubles mm -hmm. in Northern Ireland I've seen, because it, it takes its time with an extra level of, of complexity. It does show the brutality of the British so soldiers, but it also shows both sides of the war. It shows that uh, people who might not think they'll end up being uh, soldiers who kill are in that situation. Like uh, Killian Murphy's character mm -hmm. wants to be a doctor right. at the beginning of the film. But uh, when people in his uh, neighborhood are just brutally slaughtered and, and he finds he has no choice that this is all that's left to him. And he has this brother who has taken more of a leadership role mm -hmm. in the IRA. And, and so where the film really takes a quality turn is that it doesn't stop at uh, Irish good, British bad, or anything simplistic like that. Because with the treaty, right. we end up having to try to, re try to figure out, is it worth it to compromise to end the bloodshed? Or do you keep going? And... The, by making the two characters brothers, the film really hits that home. Mm -hmm. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Gandhi, uh, which was a much more epic film, but also went past the ending point. Because after the British were uh, removed from India, it then went into, well, uh, how do you form a government? How do you go on after the oppressor is gone. And even though the British aren't gone in this case, it, it asks the question, how do we move forward? And since this takes place in 1920 and the conflict went on for decades and decades afterwards, we, we know how hard that was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This one is super cool about how it transcends its material, but making it very simple in the very beginning. It's, it is, in the very, very beginning, Brits are bad, Irish are oppressed by them, yep. they, something needs to be done to fight them off. The British are horrible to people on a particular train, including beating the hell up out of the driver and causing him to lose his job, and he then joins the, the Irish resistance, and which is notable because the actor playing it is in a hunger, in a very sustained 10-minute shot having an argument about the value oh, of revolutionary right. sacrifice opposite family. That okay. is uh, Liam Cunningham. Thank you. Who is actually one of my favorite character actors and I, th I think steals most of the scenes he's in here and in Hunger uh -huh. and in Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is he is really great. And he has a particular perspective, but coming from a more workmanlike perspective where Cillian Murphy is, is coming from a more idealistic sense of of why why can't people get along and his brother by contrast is for the most part representative 
we need to do what's necessary right. for the Irish side uh-huh, to prevail. Uh-huh. And so there is a moment where um, Murphy has to make a, a very brutal decision uh, at the expense of two people. Yeah. And Murphy just, just knocks it out of the park. He is so not just placed on the emotional fever a feverish moment when he has to make the decision and finally decides, mm-hmm. but he is so broken. Something has broken inside oh, yeah. that the very way the very way he walks among what's notably like this very wonderful pastoral landscape where this horrible these horrible events occur and yeah. and very soon after that when this uh, notion of peace is, comes through, there is a debate. That uh, I'm sorry oh God, comes straight yeah. up straight up on a Frederick Wiseman documentary mm-hmm. <laughs> because <laughs> because you're getting because Loach then dedicates an enormous amount of time mm-hmm. having these very compelling arguments that are not like um in a less adept movie would be just reciting details about well, well you failed this treaty of of this year and this leader was uh, the one I've but it's not about that it's about the things that that matter to these three people and their arguments are are super compelling and interesting in a way that I couldn't decide which is the quote unquote right answer yeah. because mm-hmm. in a movie that started off by going Oh, I know what the answer is. These guys are bad. We mm-hmm. gotta stop them. Mm-hmm. Now we're like, it's a little wait, more complicated. Than exactly. That. We're made to realize it's more complicated than that. And the the way that this film, to not spoil things too much, follow the lines of the Who song, uh, "Won't Get Fooled Again," <laughs> is how somebody's put in a position where they were on the other side, where people, yeah. in fact, in the same cell, things happen in the same house <laughs> to the same people. And the way the they're in different parts of that line is so so thoughtfully rendered and leads me to just really consider where you are in your life and where you are in your country's life can put you in places you never would have expected. We're we're seeing the benefits of having a, a director and a writer who are so involved in real life politics and look at filmmaking maybe different than a lot of directors we discuss who their number one obsession is film, is movies, is their art. And certainly these are artists. I don't want to take that away. But they're also constantly looking at how art affects the real world. Mm -hmm. How do these movies matter? And to this creative team, and we're going to see this even more in some... Loach movies further on, it's not just about entertainment or even about uh, art. It's about these are injustices that that we need to get our hands dirty and mm-hmm. deal with. And yeah. so when you have a discussion of what should we do? Should we compromise and not live in freedom or invite more violence yeah. Within the hopes of finally being free, we we can have an idea on how where they might come down on it, but they don't forget to draw their characters. Uh-huh. They don't forget to make these debates vivid for us, so that I I think after you watch a movie like this, you're going to think a lot about <laughs> the troubles and what caused them and how they did or didn't end. Yeah, um, just just one scene I wanted to note. One of the scenes that was probably the most powerful to me, and it was because it involved a woman, 
was when the girl got her hair cut. Oh, that was brutal. Yeah. yeah. And just seeing that happen. And then it was like immediately after that was over, the treaty came. Mm-hmm. And it was like, something's not right. Like you, this, this harshness, these people going into her yeah. scalp and not able to go help her. Cecilia Murphy, what's his name? Damien. He he wasn't able. He was wanting to just go to her. Yeah. And and he they kept holding. It was his brother, I think. It was like just wait. You don't go down yet. Yeah. Don't go down yet. And the treaty that everybody's happy and mm-hmm. and they're go to the theater. They're going dancing, and and that's why that moment when they like are together, like kissing and stuff. It's like it's so powerful just because they they had that really extreme horrible moment yes. and then and then they're just supposed to be happy but they they still have that pain mm-hmm. from that moment and there's just so many complexities that's why this film is so good so mm-hmm. yeah 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 no I, i'm glad you brought those up because for one thing with that scene loach just does this kind of very impressive way of showing violation in a way that not only can we just readily understand just how atrocious that is, but also makes it 900 times more touching that when you see them kissing later, yeah. she has this long kind this long, um, uh, headdress, yeah. a, a scarf mm-hmm. that covers her, that covers the hair that shows that even in this moment where they want to be intimate, it comes from, there is this yeah. veil that has to be, uh, that has to be addressed. It's, Beyond remarkable to me how he was able to take something like take something like that and and, and express it so directly in a way mm-hmm. that everyone can mm-hmm. feel and mm-hmm. relate to it. Yep. But in addition to all that, that's something that I that's pick I picked up on just now thinking about the films that we had already talked about because it it's an interesting contrast with what happens in My Name Is Joe because what's ultimately the thing that steers Joe wrong is that. He feels within himself he wants to help people. Mm. And that and that explores the actions of how sometimes that can be the wrong thing to that can be the wrong thing to do. Or 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 maybe lead you as a person astray. Think about that in the context of Cillian Murphy's character, who at that moment he's trying to help, but his brother keeps him away. And you can think about it and like, oh, if he did try to help, he would have he could have been, been killed, and killed. Or, or and she could have been killed too that's right but what happens to him at the end of the movie yeah. it's not just like his final end but what gets him caught is he wants to help a person who's being shot mm-hmm. and uh-huh. to said he could have run away but he doesn't so how much is it saying is it it's an important part of him also the, that guided him from his very mission as a doctor mm-hmm. is that he wanted to go and help people yeah and it's like it's really interesting to me how it, it looks. Take something yeah. that's a, exactly. It yeah. takes a look at a sentiment that we really think is this is a very good. This is a very good quality to have in a person, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it may not be at a certain point. It may not be the right well, quality. Sweet sixteen. Exactly. You got Liam with his mom. So, exactly. Yeah, it might not. Right. Right. Yeah. Wanting to care for your mother is uh-huh. a great is a great thing to have, but sometimes it might not be the right thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's a super thoughtful idea that this that is one of the things this movie is doing on the politics and and how the older brother reacts to uh, what Cillian Murphy does is is so heartbreaking on here because 
in some ways he's attained a bigger measure in in this world but at what cost and maybe in a similar way and i might be reaching i'm just going to admit it and say this up front maybe in a way about how um liam has to um stop hanging around by the end of my name is joe to let joe move past the idea of always needing to help him in a similar way this this movie like explores um the wind that shakes the barley explores how Maybe in order for the country to move forward or political progress to be made, the idealism expressed by Sidney Murphy has to perish. It's right. something that reminds me of one of, I think, Brad's your most favorite films. Oh, Chimes at Midnight, right? Uh, there's a little of that. <laughs> oh, that's a two of because it reminds of two. What did you, were you thinking? Li- think of it in context of the of what happens with John Wayne's character in The, oh. in the, uh, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. That's a really good point. <laughs> yeah, the, the idea that uh, the old ways have to die before the new ways can take over. But mm, yeah. here's the thing is, I'm not sure Ken Loach agrees with that in the mm. case of this movie. <laughs> I am not sure Ken Loach believes that Killian Murphy's brother is the one who has the yeah. correct path. I think his I think his sympathies might be more with Murphy. Yeah, that's a really great point. There's a great line in uh, Lawrence of Arabia, which is not a spoiler alert. It's kind of full of, <laughs> it's kind of full of great lines yeah. by Robert Bolt, the screenwriter. But at the at the end, it's it's um another case where a a person tries to get freedom for a country, but it it doesn't take. And near the end, he's kind of a broken individual, and he has to leave the scene. But um, uh, Alec Guinness's character says, uh, "Okay, you were great in war because the virtues of war are the virtues of young men: impetuousness and bravery." Apologies if I'm mangling it too much, but he, uh, Alec Guinness's character, then says, "Now it's time for the peace to be negotiated by old men, and mm. the vices of peace yeah. are the vices of old mm. men: prudence and caution." Okay. And so that's a dichotomy that I feel is happening in the middle of this political situation in, in the wind that shakes the barley. I think it's worth noting that we just between that we quoted three legendary films in the idea in, in this in relation to it. And I feel it's exploring these things in a way that does justice in the same way those other films do. Ken Loach goes to a significantly different direction from the political nuances in his next film that we're going to talk about, The Angel Share, released in 2012. New Father Robbie is a rough guy who has led a rough life and hoping to turn over a new leaf, which proves complicated as his violent past and criminal associations follow him everywhere. At a whiskey tasting, he and his friends discover a priceless cask. But is this a solution to his problems or the beginning of even more? So could this be the Loach movie with the lightest touch? 
Hmm. I think so. We've been dealing with a lot of really heavy topics throughout mm-hmm. Loach, mm-hmm. and that that's his specialty. It's good, though, to see that he also has a movie like this in him, a kind of a, mm-hmm. a, a nice comedy that takes his some of the themes that he works with as far as uh, personal stories goes and just shifts the shifts the focus a little bit to where it's less dark and just more fun. So you have, again, a little bit of a uh, crime element and a character who's trying to seek redemption, but his past keeps haunting him, in this case, trying to kick his ass. <laughs> and then you also have the camaraderie that we discussed in some of the earlier films, but the the conceit of this film is that it gets us really into the world of whiskey tasting, mm-hmm. which is a fun world to be in. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I know I really enjoyed it, and but I have to admit my bias up front, as I had a person show me the kind of world of of whiskey, which is uh, in some ways kind of uh, is a. Uh, Drinking in 3D because it can be because there's so many different varieties and uh-huh. so many different kinds of flavors that can just exist off of this very small parcel of land on the face mm-hmm. of the earth. And there's ones where I've had where the flavors it turns to one kind of thing when you first drink one and it tastes something entirely different when it's in the back of your throat. It has all these different dimensionalities to it. So, this is a movie that I was incredibly charmed by because. It's very, very clear, I think, in a way that how Rounders is very, very clear mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. L- loving and enjoying the different aspects of the po- of playing poker. What drives you to do that? This gets you a sense of what it must be like to how whiskey is made, how it's processed, mm-hmm. all the elements involved in making a, a, a great bit of whiskey. A very interesting, notable thing about how the way you, when you open a cask to reveal a new whiskey, is you um, you pound on each side so the cork slowly mm-hmm. uh, pops out, and then you can and then you can remove it. So I found a great majority of the details, and in fact, some very notable varieties of whiskey are um, uh, accurately represented in this one. So that's how I particularly yeah. enjoyed it. So was this kind of like a heist film a little bit? Like Definitely, a yeah. Breaking, or mm-hmm. they're trying to do the switch, yes. right? So I think it's interesting they did it that way just because I, I think heist movies – for the most part, are usually fun, except if it's widows. But <laughs> that was not a fun one. But yeah. uh, it, it's when you're in it all together to yeah. do something, and and you're doing it for something that the guy starts to love, like the the taste and everything, and become immersed in that world. It it, it just it adds another element to the story. And I, I it seems like every big director wants to get their heist film in, and and I I. I think it's pretty cool that this is kind of yeah. his in a way. Well, I really, so, I really yeah. enjoy heist films myself, and yeah. it's there's some things that I just find inherently captivating because you have you want to have different people have different skills as part uh-huh. of the. And there's a wonderful Lochian take on it, where one person is as a young lady whose particular skills is she's a kleptomaniac and just can't <laughs> help stealing things. These, these are and this kind helps of, the plot along yeah. at several points. These are kind of anti-skills yes. in this case. <laughs> we're, uh, we're introduced to our cast very creatively, basically through a prosecutor's recitation of their crimes, which we initially think are unrelated, but it turns out these are all the people who are going to end up 
in this uh, program, yeah. uh, the community service program, of which uh, the director is the whiskey fan who uh, opens up this world uh, to our group. But uh, the way these characters are introduced is, is very amusing, particularly one who is amazingly stupid and ends up on a train track through <laughs> yes. only his own faults. So all, already we have just a funny opening and characters that we enjoy watching. Yeah, the main character and his attempts to try and look for a life outside of how how dour it, it mm-hmm. finds it and and the the difficulty to escape i i think that was rendered quite quite nicely especially in a in a turn that now i'm finding is almost like the lochian term that has happened in so many of his other um films that we talked about in like there is a the father of his girlfriend and now the who they've now had a child together and beats them up very badly in the first time we see him and then grabs him and drives him and then drives him off somewhere to just tell him look at this look at this world you're a part in is this really the world you want for your girlfriend and your and your mm-hmm. and this child but then he does another twist by giving him a different name than Luke the name that our main character and his girl has have have mm-hmm. uh, said this is the name this is his name his name is really his name is Luke and so that part is treated really nicely and here's a part where i felt on one way the madcap angles, the ways of making his story accessible, this kind of story of social stripe and so on, is the way he makes it accessible was a little too much towards uh, wild, crazy sensibility, especially with regards towards this character who, though not to the extent of certain people named Liam in earlier Roach films, <laughs> I felt, okay, he's not a bad-meaning guy, but still don't have him as yours in terms of like do you said to your point Brad the anti qualities of uh, <laughs> of the heist thing the, he is the definite speed bump to get on your getaway plan but on the other side of things there's certain things about whiskey that I feel is really interesting mm-hmm. in this sense that Scotch whiskey especially the certain brands on Scotch whiskey it's very clear that it's an expensive pursuit that can can be an incredibly expensive pursuit and in a way if you really, really think about it, it can be ironically painful to get this person who has so such struggles of money, the idea of understanding the beauty and the special qualities. I mean, it's one thing for a falcon if the falcon lives in your neighborhood, like mm-hmm. in Kess, mm-hmm. but it's another to lead him to understand the value of something that is so difficult for you to obtain if right. you don't have a lot of money. Yeah. And that's something that I think that the movie could have explored, but does absolutely does not do that. It does not make a turn to look at that. What it does do nicely is it does have a turn of where is the value of the things you have? Uh-huh. Like, the way they're able to break in is by wearing kilts, for example. The idea that you look ridiculous, yeah. and that is something that disarms people and makes them more accommodating. That actually fits in, though, with that economic disparity of the hobby, though, because uh-huh. they were worried that if they just wore their street clothes, they'd stick out like a sore thumb, yes. and they didn't look good in suits. So how could working-class guys like that blend in? And I guess the answer was... Be eccentric. <laughs> yes, exactly. That, yeah, so that's a really, and in a way, I, I, I enjoy like throwing in my head. By virtue of looking more ridiculous, you actually become more acceptable. Which is, there's a little detail at, at the end when they're bidding for this uh, millions of pounds for this whiskey. And the winner, 
gets this whiskey, which has been sort of not the same whiskey that he thought it was. Let's put mm-hmm, it that way. Mm-hmm. But then he he's an American, and he puts on this Boston Red Sox cap. <laughs> so oh, it's it makes him look like this just your average base. He's not this multimillionaire. <laughs> he's not this fancy New York financier or anything like that. He just looks like just a... Just a schmo who loves baseball. Right, right. So that way of, and there's a line which I think is, is I guess, key to maybe what I think Loach is aiming for, where he says, I want three bottles, one for to keep, one for tasting, and one for my friends. Mm-hmm. And that's a really nice triumvirate about anything, I think. And it mm-hmm. pays mm-hmm. off so well. Because the the final uh, scene in the movie is so moving, based on that very idea. Mm-hmm. I do agree on that. That and that and this is one that most takes even more than I feel. Name is my name is Joe. It works on the idea on the sentiment of on the sentiment of the thing and leaves a lot of the class examples behind in terms of saying. Just we just want these. It's a plucky crew. And yeah. We want our plucky. <laughs> we want our plucky crew to succeed. I just have to give one tiny little bit of criticism that I found phenomenal. Something where the movie was trying to be accessible that I found phenomenally irritating is that they go to the massively overhyped mid-90s tune, I Would Walk 500 Miles by the Proclaimers, <laughs> something that I was incessantly found bombarded in my head like water, like audio waterboarding all yeah. throughout that decade. Don't play it for the podcast. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, no, it's not, going to, it's not going to make that. The devil's share. No, yeah. no, that's exactly. Well, by fun, fun, quick fun fact. Depending upon your perspective, the angel share is the name of a certain part of the whiskey that evaporates yes. because a certain uh-huh. percentage evaporates every yeah. year it's sitting in its cask. But other times, whiskey that part of the whiskey that evaporates is called the devil's cut. Mm. <laughs> so, so on that, yes, for musical terms, 500 miles uh-huh. is the devil's cut. For me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'd just like to point out how I think more movies should be about hobbies. And I think it's cool that this one was about whiskey. Yeah. But anything people are passionate about, to get into the nerdy details, the way this one does about whiskey, I think Ghost World does that for music. And, of course, Sideways does it for wine. Right. And everyone's got their thing. But I think that we see a really good example here of how just being willing to bring the audience into a world they're not familiar with can be incredibly rewarding. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point, Brad. That's a really enjoyable thing that you can experience when you see how the enthusiasm that people can have for the things that they value and treasure and that they've spent their life trying to go and explore. And then you get a chance to open up a whole new world of appreciation by viewing it through their perspective and through their interests. Give That empathy is brought in on a kind of a mainstream film kind of way. It's brought to bear in a rather, in my opinion, a huge way in 
what may be one of his finest efforts in I, Daniel Blake. The second Palme d'Or winner, released in 2016. Daniel Blake is a proud man and a hard worker, but when a heart attack sidelines him from his job, the broken British healthcare system forces him into a world of technology he doesn't understand and a system that makes no sense. He finds common ground with a single mother, equally forgotten by an uncaring bureaucracy. One of the many, many interesting things about this movie is that it is to healthcare, at least presented in this movie, it is to healthcare what Ikea is to furniture. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's not a result of bad intent. It's a result of things that are trying to be functional, trying Try, to be clean, yeah. uh-huh. trying to be smooth. But something about hum- acknowledgement of humanity is missing. Something yeah. about something about like the kind of randomness to accommodate for people. That's not in the system. One thing that I found remarkable on the movie is just how pristine the image is. Especially the more that he finds himself in the healthcare system, it could almost be like on the, some of the sets of Kubrick's 2001. It's so white. Everything is so clean. Everything is just so expressly designed to be proper at the expense of the very random things that can beset messiness. the people. Messiness, yeah. Me- right, uh-huh. as part of the, the mess. messiness it is about about the people who have to deal with that system. Mm -hmm. This is by far my favorite Ken Loach film. I I adore this film. It touches me. I think it's deeply meaningful. And what I think it is, is a dystopian story. Okay. But it's a dystopian story about the world we're living in right now. Because it presents all these things... Like they're crazy. Like, how could you be on the phone with somebody to discuss a medical condition and then have people who have nothing to do with medicine make judgments that are going to affect your care? And it does this over and over again with these blocks that shouldn't be there. These these catch-22s that say, well, in order to get this done you you have to have say a phone call but the phone call never comes and then you try to call and talk about the phone call but but you haven't gotten your phone call yet it's this constant back and forth that is so nonsensical but then we realize that even if we're not in as dire a position as daniel blake is we've all dealt with it how many of us have been on the phone with comcast And had a similar, although, again, less dire experience Uh than Daniel Blake trying to uh, explain before the movie even opens how it's his heart that's his problem, not the other parts of his body that this person reading from a script keeps wanting to know about. Mm -hmm. Dude, I think you really got something fascinating about about your description on this movie because... Other films look at, when you say dystopia, most dystopias are actually about the world today. They mm-hmm. just put, but the reason that they, how they relate is they take things and they push them farther to let us re-examine. Like Children of Men looks at the idea of like mm-hmm. a, a world that is becoming more infertile or more, uh, a place where humans can can exist less and less. But it does this by pushing this. In a similar way, film satires like Dr. Strangelove and... Arguably, a, compar- a comparison with Idina Blake, Idiocracy, 
they take existing social things and they push it way further. It's absurd. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely ridiculous. But it's ridiculous because it's a funhouse mirror reflection of things that actually happen. But you are so right. It is putting an absolute mirror on things that actually exist today and saying, well, look at this. If you just really look at it, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to expect to have um, someone to, who's never used a computer to do everything online. Yeah. And then yeah. we have to, they, when they want to complain about it, the complaint form is online. <laughs> right. But these are actual bureaucratic bits of nonsense that really exist right now. And what this movie does is, a, to me, is a similar thing of what Kathy Come Home does to its dystopian story. Mm-hmm. Because... Yeah. It takes the absurdity and doesn't make it just go like an idiocracy-filled madhouse, but it has a phenomenal central line of two remarkable characters, and it's their personal story, and you're drawn in by right. what happens to these right. people who you care about and yeah. you and you relate to and you want them to triumph over yeah. this such an unfair system. Mm-hmm. And I, I was going to... Well, add a couple things. One, when you guys were talking, I don't know why I thought of this, but I thought of the trial. Mm, um, Orson Welles is the trial? Yeah, Orson Welles is the trial because when Anthony Perkins is doing things, we're like, oh, that's familiar. Like we, and, and, But you're seeing all these forces against him. Basically, you feel that trapped feeling. And mm-hmm. um, what I liked better in this film in comparison to Sorry We Missed You is is the, the performances. I thought they were really good. Um, specifically, I'm always drawn female characters, so specifically um, Haley Squires. She, as Katie Morgan, that one scene where she's in the market, and she, yes. that is just, uh, yeah. It's so sad to me. It's so sad because there's all these rules, but some people are just hungry. Here's another point. What we see on screen, for some reason, seems to be more powerful than what we see around us in real life, which sounds weird, or at least for me. Like, when I see something on screen, it validates, like you guys were saying, like a mirror of what's going on. Mm -hmm. So it elevates that issue and seeing it in a character that you are drawn to and you care about Mm -hmm. and you you just become a part of their journey. You're you're so right on that, Rebecca. It's... What I found so heartbreaking about it was not even that she was very, very hungry, although that was really brilliantly depicted. But it's also clear to me at that moment that she has been hiding this from from her own children and from even Daniel Blake at that moment. Mm -hmm. It's something Mm -hmm. she's been holding in incredible reserve. So this is as as a point where she finally just descends to something that she finds personally so shameful and and her reactions after she's had succumbed to that moment mm-hmm. is is, mm-hmm. is um really touching as a result. Yep. Haley Squires is not an actress I'm familiar with, but I'd love to see her in more things. Mm-hmm. She was mm-hmm. fantastic. This movie is like an empathy machine. Mm. And its key I think is its performance. Uh Definitely Squires, and also the lead role of uh, Dave Johns as Daniel Blake. Mm-hmm. Now, he's also an actor I wasn't familiar with, but in looking into him, it turns out he's most known as a stand-up comic mm-hmm. in the UK. And that makes sense when you look at what's going on here, because 
we're we are rightly talking about the tragedy of the film and how uh how it deals with uh such dire issues it's also a very funny film in moments Mm -hmm. mostly because dave johns is really this larger than life personality as a lot of older people are he's got all the eccentricities and all the kind of sarcasm and wooliness of uh, of a character who knows he's in a situation that is unfair but has also been around long enough that he's not going to take shit from anybody <laughs> and he has uh he has a, just a way of communicating that is endlessly engaging so it's more powerful for me than uh Kathy come home which is Certainly a film I think this resembles in style, but Kathy is purely a tragic character where I think Daniel Blake is wholly three-dimensional. He is a guy that exists, at least for me. That's how I feel like when he's going with his next-door neighbors, uh, these these kids who have uh, involved him in this scam, he's got this great relationship with them. Yeah. The compassion with which he treats the Haley Squires character and vice versa. The fact that they both find it so much easier to help each other than to accept help from the other one is just a monument to the humanism of this movie. Mm-hmm. His performance is so much of an improved experience. I feel over what happens in Kathy come home because he has exactly the opposite situation of the, of the titular character there because his awareness of his situation and the absurdity of his situation is total. It's fully realized Mm -hmm. that he knows that this is dumb, but yet he has to find a way to work around it. And he is, if Aaron Sorkin ever wrote an ornery character, (laughs) this is what it would be like, I think. Because Aaron Sorkin is known for being characters who are super aware of their political situation and can toss off the most arcane knowledge in support of their political or social position. And he is not as loquacious, and he doesn't walk down as many hallways as a Sorkin character would, on average. But every time he says a scabrous line, it is the right line. In regards to the phone conversation we were saying earlier. So he says, so why don't you get authorization for him to make the phone call that you can hand him <laughs> the post-it note right. that why I'm going to give him? do it this way? That's easier. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. So he puts, yeah. time and time again, he puts the dot on exactly what is wrong on this and that moment. Yeah. And to say that his stand-up comic has, obviously comedy has this way of looking at, especially in the stand-up, has a way of looking at absurd things. Like yeah. airline food, am I right, people? Stuff like that. But... It's something to be said for both his performance and Loach's direction of it. It's perfectly modulated. Uh-huh. It doesn't. He doesn't fly off the handle in terms of, this is just so messed up. Because as soon as he makes a point, he dials it back and he accepts it or he does something very specific to try to counter it. Right. And he, he maintains this composure. And it's very clear by the end of the movie. It's his own self-regard towards trying to maintain his own self-respect in this kind of an absurd system. Mm-hmm. It gives him a kind of dignity that Joseph K. never even realized he had the chance of, of, of having. And 
This makes him all the much, to me, all the much more nobler a character in this one. Because he's not looking for charity. He's not looking to cut corners or to make some kind of uh, scam like so many of the other characters uh-huh. we've been watching. He's got this, this, uh, this pride and this will. And when he demands things, which is what he does when he starts spray painting the office after uh, they've not only treated him so poorly, but also the young lady with the family and probably everyone else that they deal with too. When he's pushed far enough, it's not a, a selfish thing. It's the idea that he recognizes the injustice and can't live with that. Mm-hmm. It lives up to the title in the way about like how so many civil rights people, when they would march, they would have signs saying, uh, African-Americans would carry signs saying, I am a man. It's not a sense that I'm going to be raging against the machine or I'm going to upend the system or, or even I'm going to grab things that I feel are mm-hmm. mine, except the things that are like my own worth as a human being on the planet. And this is done expressly said, but it's also felt uh, felt through here. Because there's even in this system, there are people who are sympathetic, but the system itself just doesn't allow for the kind of ways to help with people. Yeah. Like, so many times there's Something's saying, missing. Exactly. Like, there's a missing piece. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the, the piece also often is the sense of, listening and acknowledgement of the mm-hmm. be- acknowledgement of people's humanity this is which is i think what the film does wonderfully by making things not look like a terry gilliam brazil nightmare world of of endless bureaucracy and red tape so much as it's like antiseptic except the thing that it's being antiseptic about is people mm-hmm. and how they talk how the person at, at the the welfare office in trying to diffuse the situation, just kind of slips back into what's clearly rehearsed words. These are the words you're supposed to say in this situation. So even when you're dealing with a flesh and blood human being, it's the same in in this situation as dealing with a recording because he can't let his humanity show through beyond what he's allowed to say or just repeat. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, what did you guys think about how events take a a turn in the last third of the film? Because one character is given a proposition to do um, some disreputable activity, and then another person almost becomes so despondent it becomes near suicidal. Like, did you guys feel that this was a natural extension of of what happens in the story? I did. I thought that every step was made sense in the context of it. We're dealing with uh, Haley Squire's character, uh, Katie, who uh, is caught shoplifting. And in the, the process of that, the security guard basically makes her an offer to work in prostitution, which is the last thing she wants to do. But she is in a position where if she doesn't do something, her children will starve. So... She makes that decision now when Daniel uh, finds out about it. He's certainly, beyond being compassionate towards her about being in this humiliating situation, he's old-fashioned enough to have even more direct reactions to this. And so they've become so close in the the course of the film, and the chemistry between the two actors 
is wonderful. And so it's heartbreaking then yeah. when she tells him that if you can't accept this, we can't be friends anymore. Yes, that's the moment that I find really great value in the movie. It's astounding how thoughtful this yeah. is. From all the movies we were talking about, it's something that Loach has been exploring, most particularly in The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Daniel Blake has nothing but the best intentions yeah. towards mm-hmm. this the, this woman. And he really feels deeply for her about this kind of degradation that he feels she's going through. But this can be a feeling that's absolutely a good feeling, a very positive feeling, but it's not the right feeling. And in Haley Squires' performance at that moment where she says, I can't be friends with you anymore because this puts money and feeds my children. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I have to, and it's left unsaid, but you can see in the set of her face that... I can't be the kind of thing that a person that you can save through your kindness. It's a horrible world, but I have to make this decision so that me and my children can survive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this acknowledgement of the reality, in spite of the clear good intentions and the attitudes that people would have morally towards what she's doing, is a phenomenally thoughtful concept of drama that harkens to the highest stuff of like Ashkar Faradi and other of the great dramatists yeah. of, of cinema. I mm-hmm. think it's a mm-hmm. it's the high point it's it's hard for me to say it's a high point because it's such a low point for the characters. But in terms of what movies can do to give us a more yeah. thorough look at this kind of situation, it's one of the all timers at, at, at the mm-hmm. moments for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I feel this film like many of the others, we come to a place where going off what you said earlier, Al, about people making choices and um, wanting to save people and then something, a wrench goes in it and then you got to go one way or maybe lose it all. See, I think what I love what this film does and other films do is when they have people like Lost in Translation, which is my favorite film and we talked about Sofia Coppola before, but um, where people just meet at a certain moment in time. And they're there to help each other during that time. And it's it's special during that time. And then they leave. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this ended not so good with them having to separate and leave. But I think during that time, they enriched each other in some way or was helpful to each other in some way. And I, I appreciate Loach looking at that and putting his own story twist into it. Mm-hmm. So. The, w- the twist that he did on there was, to me, all the more remarkable because... I think that situation, I think the temperature got raised a little bit uh, overheated to me on the drama side of things because mm. that he manages to find the right place and the very room and, yeah. and that that seems a little bum 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 to me. A little bit. Just a little bit. Well, it wasn't an accident. He true. followed the leads. Uh, uh, true. Yeah. But the idea of making that face-to-face confrontation. Uh, yeah. Again, I'm saying mm-hmm. it's a little overheated as is the irony about like when he gets arrested but because his character has been such a nice guy that they probably just let him go right and there's echoes of dog day afternoon when he gets the crowd the, yes. on his oh, side yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> including one uh-huh. very very loquacious uh, character who's listed in the credits as the scotsman <laughs> 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 um yeah and so his descent into like complete inertness i uh, was like i was really wondering about that was because his feeling towards the other people in his life did not seem to be 
so bereft of all human contact that this was the way he was going to react. It was a little overdramatic out, out, out for me. As, hmm. as the ending almost gets to, oh, that was really, really unfortunate to timing that what, of, what, of what happens there. Yeah. But unlike some other Loach films um, that we had talked about, this one definitely has a definitive ending. It's really important the way it's shown because... It's a way where a conventional movie would have had a trial sequence where Daniel Blake stands on the table and then expresses what the how society has let him down and what should, well, how things should be. And mm-hmm. I actually say it in all capital letters. But it's really interesting how this those sentiments do get expressed. You do get the words that you wished so desperately that he could say. Mm-hmm. But who says them and to what audience? Yeah. That's a really great hint on that. Huh. One okay. thing we haven't mentioned is that this is a film about old age, mm. and it's very perceptive about that. And the casting is key to that, too, because this is a character that is so full of life. The life in him is palpable in the way he works with his hands and the way he builds things mm-hmm. and the way he speaks. Right. And it's an indictment of the system that he gets to a point where even he can no longer fight. As much as he wants to, old age and sickness and an uncaring society could be too much for anyone. Well, it's also a great irony. It's well represented in the movie is how his skills are valued by certain people who want to hire him, Uh but he's only putting them out there because he has to do this to get the money so he can survive until his heart feels better and that he can work. So this is this horrible situation where he wants to do the thing Mm -hmm. that he wants, but his, but it combines with the, his, the limitations on his body and what the system is putting on himself and his body is, Whereas other bureaucratic like nightmare worlds show how just things just get complicated because people just keep adding clauses mm-hmm, and to, mm-hmm. to to the things that forms that people need to write and extensions and, and and extra phrases. But here's a case where these competing interests collide and things are at odds, and it's the tragedy in a way about systems that the window shakes that shakes the barley is about political positions. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. It's not that these things are bad or intrinsically good in of itself, but they're at odds with each other and they're going to collide. And sometimes the collisions like leave people and lives in their wake. And so another really great insight that the movie yeah. just delivers in an accessible yeah, way. Yeah. And something I appreciate from watching a lot of Ken Loach's films, I, Daniel Blake, is very, very similar in its themes to a lot of the other films, but I feel like watching all, like, the ones we just talked about, when you see the full scope of it, you admire what he's doing. Yeah, it, it's a, a very remarkable quality that I think he can do in that it's uh, he's being very clear upon a very oppressive thing that he finds in the system, where whereas not making it... In, in a way that I feel it could be very easy to be a finger-wagging, uh, look at how bad this thing is. And yeah. he, he does not do that. And I think it's, again, helped by just the great performances and direction mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. through uh, I, Daniel Blake.
but he does seem to continue on these on these themes and concerns in his latest film that he's done. Sorry We Missed You, that was released in 2019 in the UK, and we all had a chance to check this out at the Chicago yeah. International mm-hmm. Film Festival as one of its uh, showcase films. In this movie, Ricky and Debbie Turner are a couple of kids barely getting by in an uncertain economy. When Ricky is hired as a self-employed delivery driver, complete with a leased van, his prospects seem too good to be true, which turns out to be the case. Crippling debt and long hours cause family struggles at home, especially with his angry teenage son. If I, Daniel Blake, was about not working and the the horror of that, uh, Sorry We Missed You is about the horror of working in an Ah. oppressive... Nice situation. I feel just a, a little disadvantaged in how I view the film because it did come right after I, Daniel Blake, and because that earlier movie was so definitive, mm-hmm. this movie can't help but be lesser in comparison. But that's not really fair. The movies mm-hmm. should stand on their own. So I think the movie does a lot of what it's it's doing very well. It's just doing things that we've now seen Ken Loach do a lot better yeah. in other mm-hmm. films. Mm-hmm. Part of it I think is that it's just going to be in the shadow of the Titanic Central performance and and the way how it's so perfectly pitched. I believe um Chris Hutchin was a, a relatively inexperienced uh, actor in um, uh, maybe even a non-actor and it does seem to show in this film for me because whereas every single thing that Daniel Blake does you understand immediately where he's coming from there is plenty of moments in this movie where I just felt okay you're just lost <laughs> like his motivations to put his entire family's fortunes at risk in order to invest in this. I don't feel what what is driving him to make such a gigantic move, except for the general sense that you just try to get ahead. And I don't think that's unrealistic. I think a lot of people are taken in by uh, cons and by offers that, uh, like Pyramid Scheme, it just sounds great. But then if you look really close into what they're doing, it's like, uh uh-oh, red flag, red red flag. And unfortunately for this character, the red flags never came up, and he just bought into the hype of this thing, not realizing that for all the freedom he thought it would offer him as being uh, self-employed. It's basically the company's way to push off the things that are that make them liable, mm-hmm. that they have to be responsible for. Yeah. They're all those things are all now pushed off on the worker and they still get the benefit the, the profits of that work. Right. That's a really great point about how um it takes these ideas of things that people say that they mm-hmm. you want them to value. Freedom, your independence, you're your own boss. And then... It's appealing, the, it's, but it's difficult. Exactly. And I've and, done it. <laughs> yeah, and it shows the dark side of it is that yeah. all those awful parts of being your own boss, all of them get shuffled off yep. to you. Mm-hmm. And what doesn't all get shuffled to you is your take of the money for now what you're doing all this effort that was formerly handled by management by being your own boss 
you're short circuiting the person's value of work, of doing a good job and and having a work ethic and then combining it so it's so he is causing themselves to run on the hamster wheel faster and mm-hmm. faster and mm-hmm. faster and faster uh, so i again i like what it's doing like how i daniel blake that it's not showing these people who are setting up this franchise as monsters they have their quotas and so on. Right. It's just the boss that, doesn't seem so bad. No, I mean, he's and, a bit of an asshole, but he's doing his job. And exactly, yeah. he has. He has. And and Loach gives a he gives him a nice moment where he says, "There's 15 other companies who are trying for this spot. Mm-hmm. We're the number one company because I have set up these rules and this system where if you feel that you're dedicated to this system, then this can succeed." And, mm-hmm. and I and, and whereas other companies fail, this is succeeds. Yeah. And 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 it's not that it's the people's fault. It's about who people who the system was is always going to keep accountable in all times. Something that is a new way that messes with people's lives in this millennium, as people are tied in on their cell phones and and continually getting monitored and mm-hmm. and things that they were formerly felt that they were that they could privately allow for themselves to be messy human beings are now being called continually to account in a way that can be a very sharp readjustment that some people are not adequately uh, able to process. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by the movement of this film because it's exhausting. So we not only do we have Ricky Turner, but we also have Abby Turner, who's doing all the nursing jobs. And, and, and while he's trying to do his job, she's she's trying to pick up the slack doing her gigs. And the, the it keeps picking up. It keeps and then you're just more exhausted, more exhausted. And then when they when they go have that happy family time together, it's such a nice little break Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're like i can breathe now they're having a good time they're relaxing and we're relaxing with them and then it just kind of picks up again and i i saw a movie recently and it's i don't know if it's worth mentioning because it's not going to be in the u.s (laughs) it was at actually at the chicago international film festival it's called a thief's daughter and it's similar to those uh darden brothers the darden brothers yeah where it's just like she it's the main character she She's doing all these jobs and you just follow her in these different places and yeah. it, it exhausts you. The difference here is I wasn't as attached to these characters. Mm-hmm. So I was like exhausted and didn't care as much. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I have to just say that you um, I'm very happy you brought up the Darden brothers because they they're very much contemporaries upon uh, with Ken Loach in terms of how number one is that they are very dedicated towards showing the problems of a social system and how people struggle. But also, they themselves are very dedicated towards presenting these things in not a, in a non-hectoring, non-didactic way, but in a way by showing real depth of humanity and empathy towards characters mm-hmm. that, that can lead us in on, on to thinking about these larger issues on society, to which I would recommend for two specific ones to follow up on if you like that kind of thing from Loach, is uh, to look at the Dardenne's, um The Boy on the Bike, and especially Rosetta, which is kind of like the ultimate example of that expression of what does a person have to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, these that another uh, example of great realist uh, filmmakers. I want to kind of uh, move back to the performances okay. uh, in Sorry We Missed You because, yeah, I, I think Chris Hitchin, uh, uh, not being a professional actor, 
doesn't capture this role as much as some of Loach's earlier protagonists. Mm-hmm. But uh, Debbie uh, Honeywood is good. excellent yeah. uh, as his wife. I almost wish we spent more time with her mm-hmm. because I thought she was a more well-drawn-out character. But what was interesting to me was the the entire family dynamic with the kids. Yeah. Because you're dealing with uh, kind of a surly teenager. But this teenager is surly for a reason. I mean, yeah, he's doing his regular teenage rebellion thing, but he's also feeling very left out, very ignored, as both his parents are not spending time with the family, even not through lack of effort. The father tries to bring his daughter along yeah, with him on I a delivery, which goes, I love that. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a lovely scene, but uh-huh. it ends, ends up going badly. Yeah. But then when there's uh, finally a, a huge confrontation within the family and you just see what extremes Ricky's been brought to as a father, he's, dehumanized to the point where he'd just act horribly towards his own son. And I I thought that was a powerful moment. He hits him. Right, right. I'm reminded of uh, some of the scenes in Sweet 16 where they pivoted and what I found horribly obnoxious behavior and nasty behavior had these real great human motivations behind it. And here I think the pivot just missed a little bit of a step for me Mm -hmm. because there is clearly a case of artistic expression where he's he has some talent as a graffiti artist. And uh, I've seen enough examples of terrible graffiti to go and, like, I can see why people would not value that as an artistic pursuit. Let's put it that way. Um, but also, he does so many specific things that are that are that cause so many problems to the family for so little motivation that I, I felt I was left a little wanting upon like, man, that only kid just got involved in video games and just be stuck in a, <laughs> stuck watching, uh, stuck uh, stuck on the internet all day. Oh, that would have been so much better. He, he's not sympathetic, but I feel yes. like that's part of the point. I mean, right. you know, that's the, something parents have to deal with of teenagers. Of course, is of course. Teenagers are going to act out. Yeah. And you've got to be better. Yeah, yeah, and so as a driver for this, uh, for a driver of the story, ironically mm-hmm. provided a little bit of a, a roadblock or something where right. he is, the main character needs to be in places at this and this time, and needs this and this and this time, and it's a case to Rebecca to your point how the motion of just the how it's visually there always yeah. need to be moving up and down these streets, uh-huh. always be wa- running up and up and down these like, uh, break. Uh, hallways, right. and balconies. <laughs> exactly, there is no physical time from what you're watching Uh to allow for a kind of further examination on people's lives that could even hint at helping out this the 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 older teenager and then and then this idea of people's helping and and trying to keep their family value together how also but leading to bad ends also has a really interesting daughter who took uh the keys right exactly Mm -hmm. she took the keys exactly That idea of where she identifies the problem is is pretty interesting. And it is the problem, and that's why in the yeah. end it's just like, God, it's yeah. just it's, crazy. And, and there was a moment, though, near the end where the film did kind of lose me. He has an altercation where he just gets attacked and robbed yeah. and, and beat up in the van. Yes. And... It just felt like one done. step too far, a little bit too much of a twist of the uh-huh. knife, uh-huh. because we we were already there, 
and understanding how terrible this situation is, we didn't need, as I put it in an earlier discussion of the earlier movie, a movie moment uh-huh. for something that's been so realistic up till then. Mm-hmm. That is um, the movie's low point, and it's one of uh, Loach's lower points because it shows this kind of real distrust on, on the idea that your message is going through, that he was able to show that goes through so well in his previous movie because it's not bad enough that he gets mugged by these people. It's not bad enough that he is apparently has to pay for the key, the replacement keys for the new van. But literally earlier in the movie, he's introduced the idea that you, you should, um, in order to save time, you have to like leave some urine in a bottle. And the, to use that to make a literal version of the trickle-down theory is just so completely yeah. unnecessary. Yeah, that was overdoing it, I yeah. agree. Yeah, yeah. And, uh-huh. and so that is unfortunate. For me, though, I think the final image is really, really nice. In order to make up, he has to go on a job, and his family is begging him to get, to, to your point, Rebecca, to give them the moment together and try to sort that yeah. out as a unit. But he feels he can't. Whereas so many other characters in Loach films are kind of rendered inert, that, that the system is just going to beat them down, and mm-hmm. they don't even realize they have options. This is a case of the exact opposite that, that I found really interesting. Because it's him, it's his own sense of self-worth, is driving him away from his own family, and he is staple, he is the hamster who's stapling the wheel to himself. The camera is vibrating as you see him sideways and he's breaking down and the, all the places that he has to go right past are whooshing past the window. And it's, I believe it's even fading to white because uh-huh. he is literally losing himself in the haze of a self-perpetuating rat race. Yeah. So Which uh, rat goes back to riffraff. I yes. forgot to bring up the rats. That's true. The rats are a <laughs> yeah. very the, yes, the rats definitely. caught in a rats caught in a burning building is another example of of where the the ending puts the right dot. It might be an obvious dot, but it's exactly the right dot uh-huh, on, on this. Uh-huh. Yeah. So just to look over his films in a in an overview, it's a really interesting how double sided his career was because. With that break of TV in between, because mm-hmm. he had these neorealistic explorations on the in his first three films, mm-hmm. and then the later films, the combination of mainstream accessible stories and social concerns that drove the earlier films are, are brought to bear. And with a guy who's at least has not made a bad film in any of the films I've I've talked about. I've I've found something interesting, rewarding, and entertaining in every one of these movies. I would agree with that. I I mean, there are Ken Loach movies I like more than others, but even for me, the least of them is worth watching, and the best of them are worth watching a lot. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm uh, really happy that we were able to go and uh, and tell you guys listening in about the the work on Ken Loach, whose can award films aside, is still I feel a little underappreciated and underrecognized and more and it's amazing to see that he's still delivering on these on films of this level of quality late in a very extensive career and i'm very happy rebecca that you were able to join us to go and look at the films and uh, Mm -hmm. and what they had to offer Mm -hmm. i just wanted to add something uh, as a conclusion about ken loach as a director so it's interesting to me because he's about the same age as scorsese and 
and Coppola. And he seems to be separated from the pack. I just think it's interesting because I think he's very original in, in his direction. But I feel like he's an original. There's no interest in creating blockbusters here. Every single film that we've discussed seems to be exactly what Loach wanted to make. And there's no compromising with an industry, also because he didn't have to deal with the Hollywood industry. One thing that separates him from those other directors is he's British, and I think he's more of an institution in the UK than he is here. Just like any great director from another country, we can benefit from importing Mm -hmm. the great works. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, yes, very true. The one thing that I um, uh, would say uh, that is a a little strange coming out from him is that I think someone once said that, like, Britain is a group of people who are separated by a common language, and (laughs) and it's it's unfortunate (laughs) that, at least for me in particular, the accents are so thick. Subtitling. In here, that for for my to my American ears, it actually becomes valuable to have subtitles. And oh in, yeah! And in some cases, most particularly, my name is Joe. Like they had the subtitles that says English, and I I could have stood because there's so many idioms in it. I could have stood to have uh, another set of subtitles called even more English. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's our, our, our listeners in the UK are now laughing at right. us. <laughs> <laughs> but they're laughing on the left side, yeah. so that's all right. <laughs> and now, Rebecca, what's coming up for the, the Cinema Femme magazine yeah. and, and with your other projects? Well, it's interesting. So we're kind of in flux right now in the sense that, yes, I'm interviewing a lot of amazing women. Like, well, I was just telling you guys, I interviewed Mary Heron. That's um, awesome. I interviewed... Jennifer Reeder, Knives and Skin, like, they're just, it's been amazing. And so, yeah, all of these amazing interviews that I've done and then I've had some people contribute are on cinemafem.com. We may be having a YouTube series start early next year, but you can find things now on cinemafem.com. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and Fresh Perspective. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we won't forget that. On the Now Playing Network. (laughs) We we do something, like, once a month now, so, yeah. It, it, it is beyond great that you were able to take time out of so many of the projects that you had to go and uh, join us to take yeah. a look at Yeah, no, this was good. I, I was I was a little stressed about it, but I, I, I think I pulled it off well enough. Thank you. I Thank you for thank having you. me. You bet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And thank you guys for listening in on, and we'd love to hear your opinions upon what you think on, on Ken Loach films or what is your opinions on our opinions of his work. <laughs> and so feel free to send an email our way at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com to pass along your views. The Directors Club is found in multiple places all over the internet. We are on iTunes and Spotify at Directors Club Podcasts. We are on Facebook at Directors Club Podcast. We are on Twitter at DC Podcast. And we are... Uh, building up on our YouTube channel, which we're adding in some more Orson Welles and Ingmar Bergman films at the moment, which you can find by doing a search at YouTube for Directors Club Podcast. And all of our episodes can be found archived and downloadable and streamable on our site at directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and hope to catch you on another episode of the Directors Club.
Good morning, Mr. Blake. My name's Amanda. I've got a couple of questions here for you today to establish your eligibility for employment and support allowance. It won't take up much of your time. Could I just ask firstly, can you walk more than 50 metres unassisted by any other person? Yes. Okay. Can you raise either arm as if to put something in your top pocket? Well, I'll fill this in already on your 52-page form. Yeah, I can see that you have, but unfortunately I couldn't make out what you had said there. Yes. Can you raise either arm to the top of your head as if you were putting on a hat? I've told you there's no wrong with me arms and legs. Could you just answer the question, please? Well, you've got me medical records. Can we just talk about me heart? Do you think you could just answer these questions? Okay. So is that a yes, that you can put a hat on your head? Yes. Okay, that's great. Can you press a button such as a telephone keypad? Well, there's no wrong with me fingers either. I mean, we're getting farther and farther away from me heart. If we could just keep to these questions, thank you. Do you have any significant difficulty conveying simple message to strangers? Yes. Yes, it's me fucking heart I'm trying to tell you, but you'll not listen. Mr Blake, if you continue to speak to us like that, that's not going to be very helpful for your assessment. If you could just answer the question, please. Yes. Okay. Do you ever experience any loss of control leading to extensive evacuation of the bowel? No, but I can't guarantee there won't be a first if we even get to the point. Can you complete a simple task as setting an alarm clock? <sighs> Jesus. Yes. Can I ask you a question? Are you medically qualified? I'm a healthcare professional appointed by the Department of Work and Pensions to carry out assessments for employment and support allowance. But there was a bloke out in the uh, in the waiting room. He says that you work for an American company. Our company's been appointed by the government. Are you a nurse? Are you a doctor? I'm a healthcare professional. Listen, I've had a major heart attack. I nearly fell off the scaffolding. I want to get back to work too. Now please, can we talk about me heart? Forget about me arse. That works a dream. <laughs>